ladies and gentlemen, Chris Cresser. Joe, good to be back. How are you, buddy? Good to see Great. you. Yeah. Uh, we are here because of the film The Game Changers. Um, I watched it. I watched it today. Uh, I watched the whole thing from start to finish. Um, and I have to say before we even start, I like the guy who's in it very much. James Wilkes, a very nice yeah. guy. He's uh, an excellent fighter. He won the ultimate fighter. Um, and uh, I don't think he's a bad person. I, I, I've only had a little bit of interaction with him just over the past couple of days via email. He seems like a, a really great guy. Yeah, a very good guy. Genuine. I would. Well, we're going to talk. We're just going to get into it. So let's. let's do it. What 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 was your thoughts on the film, and uh, what did what stood out immediately? Okay, so a little bit of context. Um, you know, I think this film was the best of all the vegan documentaries that have been made. I'll just say that up front. I think it's pretty well done as a film. Yes. You know, it's got a big budget. Pretty good storyline. James Cameron, Jackie Chan. Lots of celebrities. Arnold. Um, you know, it's good graphics. Like, it's just mm -hmm. a well-made film. Yeah. And I think it's, especially for someone who doesn't have the background, to you know, or uh, science awareness to critique some of the claims, it's going to be really persuasive and compelling. And I've definitely, you know, whenever a film like this comes out, my email inbox just blows up. Like, have right. you seen this film? What? Oh my God. You know, like right. I'm eating meat. I'm going to kill myself. And right. it's just like, uh, it's the same as cigarettes. Right. And, and, you know, I was talking to Jamie about it before we started recording. Like I could set my watch to it every year. There's something like this happens and I've got to do a response. I consider it part of my, it's part of my public Do you service. think that they're making these films because they believe what they're saying? Or do you think they're making these films because they are trying to convert people to being vegan and they think that distorting reality and just bending things and cherry-picking data is acceptable because the long run the benefits of getting the world to shift over to a vegan diet it's worth not being completely objective or honest about the actual facts no i think they believe it i think people like i mean james for example i think he's genuinely trying to help people i think he's looked at the data and he just came to a different conclusion than somebody like me has and you know i mean this is there's something called confirmation bias. And mm -hmm. I'm sure many of your guests have talked about, but it's a basic human tendency where we, t we tend to only look at the data that support our point of view and discount the rest of it. Right. And it's, you know, even really, really good scientists have a hard time overcoming that. Everybody is guilty of it to some degree, including me. Um, but I think... Uh, yeah, so I think generally the people who are making these films really believe in it. They they believe in uh, the the power of a vegan diet, you know, from a nutrition perspective, and they also believe that it's going to help save the world. The beginning of it I thought was so strange when James talked about being injured and doing all the research that he did, which seems like an extraordinary amount of what do you say, like a thousand hours of research, and that the thing that stood out was that the Roman gladiators at least in this one particular location. Um, according to the analysis of their bones, 
uh, it appears that they had a vegetarian diet. Yeah. That they ate so, a lot of grain. That was strange, too. I mean, first of all, gladiators were basically prisoners of war criminals. So the diet they're being fed is not... Prison food. Yeah, yeah. it's prison they're, food. They're slaves that are forced to fight to the death. They had a life expectancy of about two years once they became a gladiator. And... Um, it's interesting. They featured Fabian Kahn's, who was the scientist you remember, who they mm-hmm. talked to, and definitely seemed to kind of buy into the plant-based diet idea or the idea that they were um, vegetarian, you know, by design or or by choice. And they didn't talk to his collaborator, Carl, Carl Groschmidt, who's been quoted in the media saying, "Here's a quote." Uh, and by the way, all of the references, full bibliography, show notes, everything are at cresser.co slash game changers because I want this to be totally evidence-based. People can check what I'm saying right there. So he said, the vegetarian diet had nothing to do with poverty or animal rights. Gladiators, it seems, were fat. Consuming a lot of simple carbohydrates such as barley and legumes like beans was designed for survival in the arena. Packing in the carbs also packed on the pounds gladiators needed subcutaneous fat a fat cushion protects you from cut wounds and shields nerves and blood vessels in a fight so they were basically fattening them up so they could survive longer in in the arena it's not an ideal diet for you know fighting and muscle protein synthesis and nutrition it was basically to fatten them up so they could survive longer yeah this seems so obvious that i couldn't believe it was actually in the film and it seemed it just seemed blatantly deceptive because yeah. everyone knows what their life was. It's not like these were these elite athletes that were competing in the Olympic Games. These were people that they were sending out to die for other people's enjoyment. Right. And the name, uh, my Latin's terrible, but I think it was hordiari or something. Mm-hmm. It means like barley eater. Yes. It was an epithet. It was an insult. It wasn't you know, yes. a compliment. It was right. like, ha ha, you can, you only can, can afford to eat barley. Right. Um, so yeah, it was a bizarre way to start the film. I thought there could, could have been better ways to do it. And let me also just say like, if this film, if the purpose of this film was to say it's possible to thrive on a plant-based diet and look, here are some athletes that have done that. I wouldn't have had any qualms with it. Clearly, there are examples of people who thrive on a plant-based diet. Yes. If you follow the diet correctly, it can be done. Rich Roll, we talked Mm -hmm. about last time. Scott Jurek, who's one of the athletes in the film, seemed to do well. Dottie Bausch, who's one of the athletes in the film. If you really plan it well and you understand what you're doing and you're on it, it's totally possible. No dispute with that. But where I take issue with it is it went a step further and said this is the optimal diet for athletes and everybody else which you know even though it was a film ostensibly about athletes it it definitely crossed the line into this is the approach that everybody should do yeah i mean they made these claims like all of a sudden people got stronger and faster and more endurance like there's no evidence to support that there's no evidence other than their anecdotal statements of what they did there's no one has ever put anyone on a vegan diet and then run them through extreme endurance tests and found a significant increase in vo2 max or muscle strength or any of those things none of this has ever been done so if it's if it's true anecdotally for these people, it would have been really interesting if there was some actual data to go with that where they showed studies. Right. I mean, we have James talking about his ability to do the battle ropes, that all of a sudden he could do an hour and before he could only do 10 minutes. Well, I find that really hard to believe that you gained 50 minutes of your battle rope time just from ropes. And if that was the only thing in the film that I found hard to believe, 
you know, I'd have to let it go. I mean, the guy's an athlete. He's an amazing yeah. athlete. He was a great really? fighter. He's got fantastic endurance. He has excellent martial arts technique. I would just buy it at, at face level or at, f at face value. But there's a lot of those. There's a lot. And the th I mean, we can go through it and talk about, I mean, there's that problem, which is there's no peer-reviewed evidence to back that up. But even the anecdotal evidence is a little shaky as, as when we start to talk about some of the athletes in the film and then also examples of athletes outside of the film who, you know, switch to a vegan diet. And we look and see what happened to them after they did that. The problem here is something that I call the vegan honeymoon, which is, you know, you take someone who's been on a standard American diet, they're eating KFC, McDonald's, et cetera, and they switch from that to a plant-based diet. Well, of course they're going to feel better. <laughs> They've gone from eating absolute crap to real foods. Yes. And so for a period of time, they're going to feel better for sure. But then what happens over a longer period of time, you know, some not getting enough protein just in terms of quantity and not getting the right quality of protein, that starts to have an impact. Micronutrient deficiencies, you know, vitamin A, zinc, calcium, iron, things like that take a while to develop. So you're not going to see that decline in performance happen right away. It might take three months. It might take six months. It might take nine months. It depends on all kinds of factors, genetics, health status going into it, the type of exercise and activity that they're doing, the way they're implementing the diet, et cetera. So you have to not just look at what happens a month after someone goes vegan. You have to look at what happens six months, a year after, or two years after. And we can look at specific examples of that. So in the absence of the correct amount of amino acids, the correct amount of uh, specific nutrients, you start to see a slow decline. Right. So, and this is something that they're not taking into account. Yeah. One of the things they talked about was protein content. And I immediately knew that this was not correct or that they were being deceptive. They were talking about three ounces of steak versus, uh, what do they compare? A peanut butter sandwich and maybe some lentils. Is that what it was? Oh, boy. Yeah, well, the problem is the amino acid profile of that steak is far superior. The yeah. amount of protein that your body absorbs is far superior. It's, yeah. it's a, it, you're talking about a completely different thing. This is known science. But you can get as many amino acids from plant-based proteins, but you need to eat a higher quantity. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's what's important. It's not the overall grams of protein. It's the quality of the protein. What's the amino acid of the profile of the protein? And how does your body absorb it? Again, this does not mean, like, I'm a giant fan of hemp protein. Yeah. I eat that stuff all the time. It's great. Yeah. It's just, you can't say that protein grams are equal to protein grams because they're, they're not. No, but it's even worse than that. Jamie, pull up slide four if you can. There's, I made some graphics here because um, it's sometimes easier to understand when you're looking at a picture. So for the, pro the peanut butter sandwich thing, it was like there's, a, there's the same amount of protein in a peanut butter sandwich as there is in three ounces of beef. So I, I looked up the data, of course. So three ounces of 90% lean ground beef has 24 grams of protein. You get two slices of wheat bread. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt that it's whole wheat and not white bread. That's five okay. grams. One tablespoon of peanut butter is four grams. So you'd have to have five tablespoons of peanut butter in that sandwich to equal three ounces of beef. That's a third of a cup of peanut butter. That's a lot of fucking You ever made butter. a peanut butter sandwich with a third cup of peanut butter? I probably have, but I'm a glutton. <laughs> 
I'm a legit glutton. <laughs> I've probably done that many times. So, and that's 600 calories yes. versus 200 calories from the ground beef. for the, Just for the same amount same of protein. Amount, just quantity. quantity. We're not even getting yes. into quality. Yet. Yes. I'm going to get into that in a second. Okay. But we're just talking about quantity of protein. But I think they were saying peanut butter sandwich and a cup of lentils, right? Wasn't it the combined? No, I think they said uh, three... Or, or a cup of lentils. Or uh, was yeah. it or? Yeah. Okay. So, um, but, but the then as you is pointed out. would plus a cup of lentils. Yeah. yeah. Then as you pointed out, it's all about protein quality. And yeah. this, as you said, this is an established science, firmly established science. They look at this, especially like in third world countries where protein deficiency is common. So they try to figure out how to address that. What are the highest quality proteins that we can feed th these people to bring them up to where they should be in terms of protein intake? So the, the most recent scale that's used is called the DIAS, Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. So it ranks proteins according to two main categories. One is the amino acid profile. And as you mentioned, when it comes to protein quality, it's not just does the protein have every amino acid. You know, this is what's a little disingenuous about yes. the film. They said every plant protein has every amino acid. Well, yeah, nobody disagrees with that. But does it have enough of right. each of them? That's the key question. What's the question. quantity? What's, right. the quantity? What's the profile? So the DS looks at amino acid profile, but then it also looks at bioavailability. A protein is not worth, worth much if you can't actually digest and absorb it. So... It's a complex, you know, algorithm that combines all of those things and then it ranks the proteins on a scale. So the DS for beef, rare beef, is 1.39. It's among the highest scores on the whole scale. The DS for egg is 1.13. For peanut butter, it's 0 0.45. And for wheat, it's 0 0.2. Those are among the lowest proteins that, are, that have been measured on the scale. So even if the quantity was the same... The effect on your body, particularly on things like muscle protein synthesis, which is of concern, for, you know, for athletes, is not even in the same ballpark. And when they're talking about the USRDA, they're talking about like how much, you know, the United States recommended daily allowances. That is, isn't that just to be healthy, like to be not alive? Not even healthy, but to be alive is to be more, alive. more accurate. It's the, it's, the avoid, it's the amount that's required to avoid malnutrition. Technically, right. so that's I, I know that. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, why why don't they know that? I'm not doing any documentaries on food. Why don't yeah. they know? That seems like so to use that as a reference point. To use that as like, look, you can get this. That's plenty. That's crazy. Well, that's a common argument in the vegan community, and they, you know, I don't know whether it's because they they really don't understand the science behind it, or because they do, and they're just, you know, it's being kind of exaggerated to suit the their claim i can't know that you know this is what i think it is honestly there's a lot of vegan influencers and there's a lot of people that make youtube videos and people who produce things like this and then the other folks just parrot what they say right so instead of reading the actual studies and talking to objective researchers who have gone over the evidence and disputed the claims that are in these films like a, a debunking of one of these films will get l way less views right than the, the actual film itself that's yeah. just how it goes nobody's gonna watch and so especially the people that are already convinced for them it's like excellent I knew Jesus was real now I've got the proof <laughs> you know I mean it's really like that it becomes yeah the, the ideology becomes so strong it becomes like a religion and look 
I've been accused of it from doing it from a, a meat perspective. And mm. I understand. I understand that you would think that if you had an opposing vegan or vegetarian perspective. I, I totally understand. But man, you know, we, we saw it with the, with the Joel Kahn discussion. And you see it almost every time someone who's actually informed has a conversation with one of these influencers. Like, they're not being 100% accurate, objective, or even honest in a lot of cases. Yeah. I mean, there's a great Leon Festinger quote. I don't know if you've heard it. A man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him the facts and figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. The, the best argument, in my opinion, is this factory farming is disgusting and that the cruelty of treating animals like, uh, like a commodity and serving them up for slaughter in these horrific conditions, these factory farming conditions and these horrible pens that we've all seen. That's the argument for veganism. I agree. But with when we're talking about performance and health, this is where it just gets very frustrating for me. Because yeah. like, if you want to make an argument that you should probably – follow a more complicated diet more complicated meaning that it's more difficult for you to acquire in some cities you have to be a little bit more careful about getting supplementation with vitamin b12 and mm -hmm. uh, and essential amino acids you got to be a little bit more careful if you want to maintain a healthy robust life it's possible to do that but it's a little more complicated and if you want to say I want to live like that because the way I feel about eating animals, it makes me feel terrible. I don't want to have any part of that. And I found out that I can not have a part of that and I can live my life. That's great. But that's not what they're saying. No. And there's a lot of problems with that argument too. I want to come back and spend some time sure. on that. But We can I'll... do it right now before we move on because it is, okay. we just covered it. All right. Uh, can, so I want to go back to the yes. RDA. I don't yeah, want yeah, to forget for sure. that because that's super it. important. Yes. Um, yeah, so where to start with that? Um, so first of all, you know, the, the idea that plant-based agriculture doesn't kill animals is just false. I mean, there have been studies that show that particularly monocropping type of plant agriculture kills far more animals than are killed in, you know, from eating cows, for example. B insects, rodents, you know, mice, birds, fish, all, uh, you know, killed in the process of industrial agriculture. And so that presents an, an ethical dilemma, really. If you are saying I'm a vegan because I don't want my food choices to involve killing animals, is killing you know, a whole bunch of small non-mammal animals better than killing mammals? Or what about killing more small animals than one cow, you right. know, is, is that size ethically, size does size matter? Does it, you know, where do you draw the line between an animal that is like sentient enough or cute enough maybe to not be killed versus. Let me clarify what you're saying too. You're saying more animals per meal. So you, like if you want to have a meal out of wheat, you're pr most likely more animals are going to die than if you want. It's like if you have 100 meat wheels, uh, me, uh, wheat meals rather, 100 meals with wheat in them, you're probably killing more animals than if you have 100 meals with cows in them because that's like a cow. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I just, I'm comparing kind of the whole process, you know, like eating animals versus eating plants. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and I don't know if that per meal comparison has ever been done, but I'm just saying that 
That's an interesting ethical question. You well, know, let me diff- give you their argument for that. They, they say that most of these monocrops are to feed animals. Uh, yeah, that is a problem. I mean, I, I fully, where I agree with this film is that conventional uh, livestock practices are harmful. Right, but what they're the saying planet. is that you're saying that eating a vegan diet and all these monocrops, that these monocrops are killing all these small animals. They're saying, no, these monocrops, most of them actually exist to feed livestock. That's that's not true. I mean, if, if you follow this through, I mean, especially when you start talking about like fake meat and some, you know, yes. they're, they're all, what are, what are those based on? So, soils. Yeah. Yeah. They're industrial crops. They're not you know, grown on the family farm. These right. are industrial GMO monocrops. Massive, massive On a fields. massive scale. Um, there was a great study published in the journal PNAS in 2017, and that it was specifically addressing this claim of would removing animal products from our diet have, you know, saved the world, basically. Would it reduce greenhouse gases? Would it improve our nutrition? Um, basically, they found that it would only reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2.6%, but our intake of carbohydrates, total calories uh, would go way up, and the incidence of nutrient deficiencies would go way up. And they did the math and found that without animal products, domestic supplies of calcium, EPA, and DHA, which are the long-chain omega-3 fats, retinol, and B12 were, quote, insufficient to meet the requirements of the U.S. population. So translation, everybody would have to be supplementing with those nutrients if everyone went on a vegan diet. And they went on to say that um, basically there's already a surplus of calories in the diet of 145%. If everyone went, if we removed animal products entirely, that would go up to 230%. So that because the volume of calories in food that would be required to meet basic nutrient and protein needs would be that much higher. So, you know, there's a lot of downstream consequences that I don't think have been fully thought through. Even if a plant-based diet might work for one person, does it, will it scale? You know, if you, if you take that to the full level of like everyone eating a plant-based diet, which is the argument that is being made, does it really work from a nutritional perspective, from an, from an environmental perspective? And even from an ethical perspective. The, envir- the environmental perspective is legitimate. They both cause environmental damage, both animal agricultural and plant agriculture. There's, industrial there's no way around ag- Industrial it. Yes. practices cause environmental damage. And if you want to yeah. feed 320 million people, you're not going to do it through organic farms. You're going you're to have to, I mean, you can grow food in your neighborhood. I mean, if you live in a small town, you guys can have a co-op. You can have food in your backyard that you can grow. But if you're living in a city like Los Angeles, it's highly likely your food is not coming from that city itself. So that, that means it has to be grown. Yeah. And if you're going to yeah. grow food for 20 million people, you need a giant chunk of land. If you need that giant chunk of land, even if everybody's eating vegan, that means wildlife is going to be displaced. The, the area where you're growing crops, it's going to be a monocrop culture. You're not going to have all these plants living together like they do in the wild. That's just not how you grow food for 20 million people in a very specific area. You just yeah. don't do that. Yeah, I know you had Joel Salatin on the show a while mm-hmm. back, and, and Alan Savory talk a lot about this, that, you know, one of the biggest issues right now is, is soil, soil erosion. Soil is eroding. You know, the, the, the FAO has said we only have about 60 harvests left if soil continues to 
degrade at the rate that it's going. And so one of the arguments for regenerative, holistically managed livestock is that that can actually help rege regenerate yes. healthy soils. And some, like Joel Salatin or Alan Savory, would argue that that's the only way we're going to be able to feed the world because only about six, about 60% of available land is not suitable for cropping. Even if we decided, hey, let's just plant soy and corn and, and you know, plant plants everywhere we couldn't because right. it's too rocky or hilly or the soil's not adequate to, to do that but it could be used for livestock there's a thing that they keep saying that you brought up slightly you, you touched on it a little bit earlier the the thing is that greenhouse gases mm -hmm. and they were talking about the greenhouse gases from meat and it's just a fake number I mean, it's over Fake the top. News. It's over the top. Not true. Yeah. The specific number is nine percent for all agriculture. All agriculture, including growing crops. The vast majority of all of our greenhouse gas issues are coming from transportation and from industry. This is this is undisputable. So this this is so where I wonder too about like whether it's is this disingenuous? Like, is this? Did, are they not aware of the? what's happening here or is it disingenuous because so so here's the thing here's what they did joe so the the number in the, the specific number in the film they say uh greenhouse gas emissions from cattle are 15 percent and that and they compared that to 14 percent for all of transportation but the problem with that is that they're using the full life cycle analysis for cat for livestock so that means um you know, the carbon needed for feed, for transport, for processing the cattle, not just emissions, not just methane right. burps yes. from the cattle. Whereas for transportation, they're only looking at what were called direct tailpipe emissions, just the emissions that come out of the tailpipe. They're not looking at the carbon needed to manufacture the vehicle, the cars, the buses, the airplanes, the inputs for making the fuel, the fuel production and distribution, the final... Uh, use of the fuel, that life cycle analysis for transportation hasn't been done just because it's enormously complex and it would be a phenomenally big number. Um, the EPA has estimated that something around 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions comes from industry, basically yes. fossil fuel. So it's not an apples to apples comparison. They're, right. they're doing the full life cycle for livestock versus just the direct emissions for transportation. Well, if we look at just the direct for both, it's 5% for livestock globally and 14% for transportation. But in the U.S., it's only 3.9% for livestock because we have more efficient practices here versus 14% for transportation. So not even in the same ballpark. And it's it just – it's yeah, I mean, they can just say that in the film. Most people will hear that and nod their head because they've heard those numbers before, but the devil is always in the details. Well, what's going on is what, what you see in a lot of these videos where only one person gets to talk, yeah. right? One person who has a specific agenda gets to cherry pick the data and distort it and then put it on the film. I mean, and you can accuse us of doing that right now because both of us are clearly on the same page. Yeah. And uh, I would be happy to have James come in with you afterwards. Yeah. I just, but we decided... We did it with Joel. Yes. and we did, Well, James is way more reasonable than Joel yeah. and, and not slimy. So I'd be happy to do that. And I think that when, when it's all said and done, I, I would just like people to be informed. And uh, you're, you're, everyone is going to have their own ideological bias. Everyone's going to have their own preference. Everyone, but to make poorly informed decisions, or that's being kind. To be more blunt, deceptive, 
information f forming your decisions and 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 having health consequences because of that to me pisses me off and freaks me out yeah because it's it's not the the health aspects are not being represented accurately yeah it particularly bothers me when kids are involved oh there um, was another there was a case recently where um uh, I, I was going to tweet it, but I was like, God damn it, I can't even tweet it. It's so sad where a child had died from malnutrition yeah. because the parents were feeding it a vegan diet and all the other kids looked like they were starving to death too. And then the you know social workers came in and thought, thought, it's a goddamn nightmare. And you don't hear – I mean, if you hear about that from people that are starving their kids on a regular diet, they're just either extremely poor or they're monsters and they're treating their kid terribly. These people don't seem like they're bad people. No, they're that's what the they're, scariest. They believe in what they're doing. They're trying to do the right thing. That's the scariest part about it. Yeah. Is like you're seeing that this this diet again. You can do it correctly, but it's fucking complicated. It's hard. Yeah. Just one more thing on the greenhouse gas uh, question. All the numbers I just gave you were from conventional methods. You know, um, like basically uh, KFO beef. Um, when they have looked at regenerative, holistically managed livestock, they've found that it can either be carbon neutral or even a carbon sink. So there's a guy who's written some papers on this, Richard Teague, and in his 2018 paper, which again, you can find on my website, thecresser.co slash game changers, he found that um, these larger, more complex, holistically managed sites can sequester between three to four and, and even up to seven tons of carbon per hectare per year. So these holistically managed beef operations are actually removing carbon from the atmosphere. How does that work? How are they doing that? This is a little out of my wheelhouse, so, um, but it's part of the whole methane cycle, the natural biogenic cycle. And the difference, and this is important to understand, is the difference between transportation, which is basically taking out fossil fuels that have not been part of that natural cycle for millions of years and then just emitting them into the atmosphere. With the carbon, the, the biogenic carbon cycle, you have methane, you know, cows are burping out methane. Methane goes up into the atmosphere and then via hydroxyl oxidation, it's converted into uh, CO2 and water vapor. Then the plants take in CO2, and, and then via photosynthesis, they convert it into food, basically. And then the cows eat the food, and the, the whole cycle keeps going. And this, like is that. A, this is a natural cycle? This is this not is something a, you have to use equipment to This is a natural this? cycle. So it just has to be a certain amount of plant life in, in their area? And so the way that, I mean, like Joel Salatin, for example, from Polyface Farms and, and Savory Institute, the, they basically educate farmers on how to um, rotate their livestock. Again, this is not my area of expertise, but rather than just having the cattle stay in the same place the whole time, like in a feedlot, they're moving the cattle around, the cattle are, are pooping, then they bring the chickens to where that was, you know, where the cattle were, and they, they move it around in a way, again, that I don't fully understand. But the effect of this is that the amount of carbon that is sequestered from the atmosphere is greater than the amount of CO2 that is emitted. And this, these life cycle analyses have been done and published in the literature. It's true that right now that type of um, holistically managed livestock is not very common, but that doesn't mean that it's not what we should be doing. And, and you know, this is, 
the thing. Like with the film, I agree with the problem that they, you know, the premise, which is that the feedlot beef production is a nightmare. You know, it, it can be bad for the environment and we have to do something about it. Where we disagree is what the solution is. Yes. You know, they go to a plant-based diet or fake meat or lab meat. I go to regenerative, holistically managed livestock. Okay. Um, so this animal production, like the, 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 the regenerative livestock production, the, doing it in this method, is that sufficient to feed everyone? The production? I mean, how much land do you need to do something like this? So I... I knew you were going to ask that question, and Good. I talked to um, Savory Institute about this and a few other people. And um, basically, one response is it's the only way we're going to feed everybody because, as I mentioned, there are only 60 harvests left because of soil degradation. So continually you know, trying to scale up industrial plant agriculture with soy and corn and, and all of these kinds of crops is going to further degrade the soil. And at some point, we're not going to have any soil left to That's grow stuff with. That's an important factor, right? We, we should talk about this, that you need compost and you need fertilizer and you need something that replenishes the soil. And doing these large-scale monoculture crops when you have these enormous areas, they're just depleting, right? They're just pulling, and then yeah. they have to add. You they can't have to make add something from minerals. nothing. Right. That's the thing. We're not just, we're not choosing between like, you know, two, one really good alternative and one terrible alternative. That's not a choice, like right. you were saying before right. the show. Like, that's not even a choice. You just do, you just obviously do the right thing. We're choosing... It's like, on the one hand, if we try to scale up plant agriculture in an environment where, according to the F FAO, our soils are in only, quote, fair, poor, or very poor condition, and we only have 60 harvests less left due to rapidly deteriorating soil due to erosion and nutrient depletion, then we desperately need new methods of restoring healthy soil. And if we can do that with regenerative, holistically managed livestock, which has been shown you know, in the scientific literature to be possible, then that may be the only way we can feed everybody. So we would need to almost have a reversal, if that was the case, and have more animal agriculture than plant agriculture. But not so, the way it's being done now. Right, it would have lot. to be... So they would have to be like Joel Salatin set up. Yeah. So where there, he's got polyface farms. We would need three things to happen. One would be we'd need to return all the croplands that are being used to feed livestock and feedlots right now to grassland. And number two, we'd need to put all unused land, like the rocky, hilly soil that or or land that can't be used for plant agriculture, into production for, with animals. And number three. Farmer, farmers and ranchers would need to adopt regenerative practices, you know. So I'm not saying this is an enormous undertaking. Yes. We're not, we're talking, but so is feeding the world with plant-based agriculture. Right. Like whichever direction we go, we're talking about, you know, really uh, systemic change that needs to happen in a big way. What percent, and this would have, you'd have to have all of the meat be grass-fed meat because they would be eating what they naturally eat. Now, what is the percentage of grass-fed meat in this country currently? Uh, I don't know for sure. I think the number I read was something like 2 or 3%, so very low. Very small. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um Many, many people prefer grain-fed meat. They like it fatty and sloppy. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is, right? A lot of people like that. Well, what's interesting, and I didn't even know this until uh, 
a few years ago. Even fact, you know, feedlot meat is mostly grass-fed. It's just what happens in the last like five or ten percent of the process. Um, so it's like ninety percent grass-fed, and then it's grain finished, and mm-hmm. that grain finishing yes. gives it the marbling that right. is what you're talking about. What it makes the animal like. sick. <laughs> I mean, that's really, they're yeah. not supposed to eat that. Really, that's yeah. what it is. And we've gotten addicted to animals eating things they're not supposed to eat and the way their their flesh comes out. Yeah, I mean, 80, a lot of that is uh, that you're eating things like soy cakes, you know, they which is a byproduct of soybean oil production. Soybean oil consumption has grown like a thousandfold in the past 120 years. It's now the 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 number one edible oil that we eat. Because if you go into the supermarket and you look at any food label, it's soybean oil, soybean oil, Mm. soybean oil. So the oil is valuable. And then they take the cakes that are left over from the oil production process and feed them to cows. And so, yeah, they're eating stuff that they wouldn't normally have eaten in that scenario. Yeah. So both scenarios, as you said, are almost insane. Feeding everyone. And then also, like, what do we do with the animals? If we're gonna stop eating meat, like let's let's say if this entire country stops eating meat, what do we, what do we do with the animals? We give them birth control, make them die of old age. Do they go extinct? If they don't go extinct, who houses them? Who feeds yeah. them? What do we do with them? We never eat them. How do we kill all the wild pigs? I mean, another question is, what do we do with the feed? The things that we're feeding the animals. If that stuff yes. decomposes, it releases carbon into the atmosphere as well. But at least when you feed it to animals you're taking food that is inedible to humans like i'm not going to eat soy cakes <laughs> i don't right. think you are grass fobs yeah. uh corn stalks uh leftover grains after whis- you know you make whiskey and other types mm-hmm. of alcohol you feed those to cattle they upcycle that into highly nutrient dense and bioavailable protein uh, what james said a number of times in the film was a- cattle or animals are just the middleman i'm like exactly they're yeah. really amazing middlemen. <laughs> they take food that is inedible to humans and turn it into super nutrient-dense food that we, yeah. can, that we can digest and absorb. I mean, thank you. Yeah, this, um, I mean, it's just, it's so confusing when a, a film like this gets made because so many people get up in arms and so many people get influenced by it and so many people think that this is the way to go. Um, my take on a lot of this is there's a lot of people that have kind of fashioned their careers out of this ideology, whether they believe it or not, you know? The thing is, like, we can go down that road of, we can say, okay, so this film was made by James, you know, James Cameron was one of the filmmakers. He also is the owner of Verdient Foods, which is a pea protein company, and he said it, he has the goal of it becoming the biggest organic pea protein company in the, in the world. He's invested $140 million into it. His wife, Susie Cameron, is finding a chain of vegan schools, and so, you know, from one perspective, that's conflict of interest. You know, this it this is an agenda-driven film. It's not a dispassionate, objective look, you know, scientific look at the, at the vegan diet. But, you know, I, I mean, you can make that argument about just about anyone at this point. Like, is it that surprising that a vegan film has a bunch of vegan medical experts in it? Is it surprising that those experts invest in what they believe in and that they write books about it? I don't think so, you know, but but it's important to know that and to not confuse a film like that with a scientific work. And yes. that's my problem with this is the, um, what is it? The American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I have to look this up. One of these organizations is offering CEUs to doctors who watch this film and complete a quiz. That's absolutely ridiculous. This, this has not been peer, this is not peer reviewed science. This is not... 
something that doctors should be getting CEUs for. What is a CEU? Continuing education units. Mm. So like oh basically doctors have to do, any medical professional has to do a certain amount of continuing education. You know, generally you go to like an accredited um, seminar or class or, or whatever, and, and that's how you do it. But they're actually offering those for people who, doctors who watch this film and complete a short quiz. And wow. yeah, that's freaky. So I don't know if we talked about this on the con show or one of the previous one. Yeah, it was American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Well, they were founded by Seventh-day Adventists at Loma Linda University. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, do you know about this? They're vegetarians. Yeah, so yeah. it was uh, one of the founders was Ellen White, and she taught that meat was a toxic substance and that flesh should be avoided because it increases our carnal urges. Hollow. So yeah. it was it was a moral religious thing at mm -hmm. first, and then uh, one of the other um, an early Adventist church member uh, Lena Cooper she co-founded the American Dietetic Association, which is still to this day one of our major dietetics uh, organizations. And she wrote textbooks that were used in dietetic and nursing programs all around the the world for for thirty years. So we have this weird meshing that mm. goes back to like the early 20th century between religion and science. Do the Seventh-day Adventists have better health overall in general? Do they do. They, are they like one of those blue but, zone people? But the argument is often made that that's related to diet. Well, it could be that it's it's related to, you know, part of their creed is to eat healthy whole foods, but they're also don't smoke, they don't drink, they're, they're advised to exercise. So, it's kind of like the Dean Ornish studies where, mm -hmm. you know, you put together all these interventions that one of which is a low fat diet. And then you say that the benefit was because of the low fat diet. What you're, what you're referring to is the study that showed that, and this is what vegans like to say, that vegan diet is the, and Joel loves to use this one. A vegan diet is the only diet that's ever been shown in a study to, to reverse, reverse heart, heart disease. disease. Yeah. But what this study actually shows is these people had terrible diets. They smoked and they drank. And then they put them on a vegan diet, no smoking, no drinking, and exercise. And what do you know? Their health improved. It, but it's not like we have a, a corresponding diet where they did the exact same thing and gave them an om omnivorous diet with like grass-fed bison meat no. and then showed a similar uh, set of no. tests and showed a decline or showed a better performance by the vegan diet. You have all of these factors that are compiled together. Quitting drinking, quitting smoking, quit eating shit food, yeah. eating a vegan diet, and, and exercise. And stress reduction stress and reduction. community support, yes. all of which we know have an impact on right. heart disease. That is the study. So when they say that a vegan diet is the only diet that's ever been shown to clinically reduce heart disease, that's not really true. It's disingenuous. And the other thing about that study is that in the the baseline characteristics of the control group versus the experimental group were totally different. The experimental group weighed 34 pounds more than the control group. So they had more, you know, they were more overweight, more, mm -hmm. they had more weight to lose, right. you know. And they were less healthy. I mean, that study would be yeah. thrown out today. Right. Like you, you can't what study, do, what year was the study <laughs> this from? This was 1998. Yeah, well, this was the problem when conversing with Joel about this. And by the way, the reason why I had him on, and I know people think I'm biased, and I am, I, I'm biased. This is, this, my perspective is that you're correct, and that all these other, you know, Mark Sisson and Rob Wolf and all these other folks, I think they're correct. 
Uh, an omnivorous diet is the way to go. But I had him on to try to pursue this path of objectivity, to try to give him an opportunity to express what what's incorrect about what you're saying. And it didn't work out for him. And, and he, yeah. I mean, by everybody's account that I saw that he lost that debate. So, you, I mean, you, you brought up a point which I think is the crux of this whole thing, which is context is everything. And the problem with a lot of the research on plant-based diets and, you know, low-fat diets and all this is they make the implicit assumption that a diet that includes meat that is like where the context is KFC, McDonald's, you know, cheese doodles, Coca-Cola, all, the whole standard American diet is the same as a diet that includes meat that's completely whole foods based, you know, right, like right. the way you eat, yes. the way I eat, yes. you know, lots of vegetables, fresh, you know, nuts, seeds, starchy tubers, whatever. Yes. Obvious. If you ask a hundred people on the street, my guess is a hundred percent would say those are obviously different. Yes. But the way that research treats them is they're exactly the same. The same. They're, they're exactly the, the same. Because the correlating factor, the main factor is meat. Yeah. They that's don't they control for in. any of those right. other things. It's ridiculous. Now, it's, that's changing. So there have been studies that have been done over the past few years that are looking more at diet quality rather than just the quantity of specific food ingredients or foods like meat. And what those diet, those studies are universally saying is that quality is what makes the difference. Yes. And so a, a great example, we talked about this with Joel, are the studies on looking at omnivorous versus vegetarian and vegan diets and lifespan. But instead of just looking at the general population that eats meat, they tried to find ways to like at least choose a slightly healthier omnivorous population. So there was one, the health food shoppers study, where they, they only looked at people who shopped at health food stores thinking, okay, these people are at least thinking about it a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's still not controlling for all the factors, right. but they're saying, let's look at people who shop at a place like Whole Foods and then let's look at the like, compare lifespan between vegetarians and vegans and omnivores. Well, guess what? They both, both groups live a lot longer than the general population, but there was no difference in lifespan between people who ate meat and vegetarians and vegans. The, the premise is that meat is poison. And so when you add meat to these, these studies, that people with meat are going to, well, they're eating poison. And the people without me, look, no poison. I mean, this is, but what about all the other shit? Yeah. This is what's so crazy about it. Like, how can you have a study where you don't take into account how many people drink or smoke? Yeah. And you just add the meat. It's, it's insanity. It's, that's the healthy user bias. And I yes. mean, this, this is the, the, the problem. And what makes my job so difficult is like, people have heard that meat is bad for 50, what, 60 years, you know? So someone can say meat is bad. That's three words. And for me to unpack that, I have to talk about healthy user bias. I have to talk about problems with data collection and food frequency questionnaires. I have to talk about relative versus absolute risk. I, yeah. You know, I mean, people are just like, what? Uh, well, that's <laughs> no a problem idea. with any of this data. And it's one of the beautiful things about being able to talk about it on a podcast with a moron like me is at least you're getting a conversation yeah. where people are going to ask questions like, what the fuck is he saying? So I get to ask you that and then people get to hear it. It's you know, th this is a very strange time when it comes to information because so much of it is available, but almost too much. Yeah. And then when you realize, when you start trying to study nutrition, there is so much to learn. There's so many factors yeah. and there's so many biases. Well, where I like, I listened to your interview with Matt Tybee and, and, you know, the point 
I was thinking about it because you were talking about it politically, how we're just living in echo chambers now. Yes. So you go on social media, you're Republican, you're only going to see stuff about that, that caters to your view. And the algorithms are even optimized for that because they know that you'll click on that more and that will lead to more ad dollars. Yes. So, but it's similar with nutrition. So, you know, if you're vegan, you go on YouTube, you're going to see a ton of vegan videos and vegan perspectives, same with your Facebook feed, et cetera. And to be fair, it's the same for, you know, people who are into keto or low carb or carnivore or whatever they're into. It's, it's the same thing. Yes. So you're just getting this reinforcing confirmation bias, you know, supporting uh, access to information. That is a weird thing about social media algorithms, whether it's YouTube algorithms or Facebook or any of these things, is that they're giving you what you want to see, which you would say, oh, great. Well, that's what I want to see. Yeah. But the, the problem yeah. is like there's, there's, so, there's so many counter arguments, like, especially when you're talking about nutrition science. There's so many discussions on both sides of the fence, and it seems like both sides are preaching to the choir. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we're biased, as you said. Uh, my story, as a lot of people know, is I was vegan. And, and Somebody for, said for on one of the videos, you are the most vegan-sounding non-vegan ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I was a vegan. I was vegetarian. I was a raw food vegan. I was a macrobiotic vegan. I have a lot of friends who are vegan. I have patients that are vegan. I have nothing against vegans. And I totally get the reasons that people become vegan. But I, like my, many others and my patients and my community, my health was harmed by that. And, and now, I mean... How was your health harmed? Can you explain to people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I lost weight. And as you can see, I don't have a lot to lose to begin with. Um, I, my digestion got really screwed up. I got depressed. I'd never been depressed. Like, I've never been a person who gets depressed. Um, I felt anxious. I... Uh, you know, it just was clearly not working for me. And again, I, that's not to say it can't work for some people. Do you think the cause of depression had something to do with the diet because of the lack of cholesterol? It's, it's uh, B12. Hormones. And, iron. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, but, you know, now, like, I mean, it's funny, too. Some, I don't actually, I make a point of not reading comments usually. Yeah. Uh, but occasionally I come across them on Twitter no, this or something. this is something a comedian told me. <laughs> So that's why I thought it was hilarious. So, so uh, you know, people are like, oh, he's such a, you know, he's going to get on there and just low carb, low carb. That's total, like, I don't, I'm not a low carb guy. I never yeah. have been. I, in fact, I'm in trouble with the low carb community because, you know, I, I push back. I don't think it's right for everybody. I don't think it's right for performance. Yeah. I, I don't see any evidence that for elite athletic performers that it's the way to go. And uh, I don't know anyone that's an elite athletic performer that follows those diets. Maybe except, endurance, endurance yes, runners. I was going to say Zach. Zach Bitter. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. Zach. And Zach flies in the face of all this stuff. And, you know, if you want to include someone like that guy that ran the Appalachian Trail in 48 days Scott, or whatever he did. Yeah, I mean, Scott, which is sure. no small feat for sure. But, I mean, Zach Bitter ran a 20 – he ran a 100-mile – race in 11 hours and 40 minutes which is 40 something minutes which is fucking bananas and then kept running and then I kept think running. after that well, he's a savage <laughs> all he eats, he eats ribeyes yeah that's what that guy eats but, so, the main i mean he talked about the main food in his diet is ribeye yeah, steaks he, he's mostly keto so yeah i mean anyways my point was just like i'm tr i try i'm not super dogmatic i'm just like i i'm interested in what works for the most people essentially right. and you know, uh, you mentioned Scott Jurek. 
a Belgian dentist shattered his record by five days a couple of years ago, and that guy was eating like Snickers and really? tons of crap. So I'm I'm not saying that, that he that, shattered his record by five days. Yeah. Oh Jesus. I'm not saying that. Why that's wasn't that in the movie? Should, uh, <laughs> I'm not saying that's what you should do, but I'm saying there's more to athletic performance than food. I guess that's not really deceptive because he did break the record. When he broke it, he did break it. Yeah, he broke it. He's but a then, phenomenal athlete. Yeah, we don't want to take that away from him again. You know? And then like Michael Phelps, you know, guy eats pizza. Guy eats twelve thousand calories of like sugar, <laughs> Swiss, French toast, yeah. pizza. Um, Usain Bolt in the Beijing Olympics when he shattered those records, he fa- he ate a thousand over a thousand chicken nuggets. I think somebody calculated <laughs> it. So you know, there's more there's more to it. Than well, I diet. think when you're at that level of performance, you are burning off such an insane amount of calories. And you're working matter. so hard, you can kind of yeah. almost eat anything when you when you're in that mode. For yes, sure. yeah. yeah. When we did, we, and this is obviously not comparable, but when we did sober October last year, and we had this fitness challenge. I was doing cardio, no no joke, it, minimum five hours a day, sometimes six and seven. Wow. It, was, it was insane. Yeah. And I was eating everything, boxes yeah. of cookies, go, b- bottles of soda. Probably lost weight too. Yeah, I did. Well, not really because I lifted a lot of weights too. Yeah. I kind of maintained. Maybe mm-hmm. I lost a couple of pounds, but I was drinking like giant like c- Cokes. Like, a, a, like a, I was drinking like um, a, a cream soda. I never right. drink that shit. Yeah. But it's like my body wanted sugar. It's yeah. like, give me some sugar. You just did seven Calories. hours on a fucking elliptical machine, right. you asshole. <laughs> and it was, it was so ridiculous but those guys are working out even harder than that so imagine like what felt if you need twelve thousand calories you're not getting it with paleo and you're not getting it with vegan diet that's important no that's important so let's go let's rewind a little bit to the protein the rda yes rda protein that's super important yeah so 0.8 kilograms per uh, grams per kilogram of protein per day is the rda and again that's just the basic minimum. That's not the amount that's needed for optimal health and performance. That's just the absolute basics for not for avoiding malnutrition. However, even that number now, uh, that's based on outdated nitrogen balance studies for determining the RDA. And there's a newer method called the indicator amino acid oxidation technique or IAAO. Um, And this suggests that the RDA should be 1.2 grams per kilogram. And again, just the basic minimum, bare minimum, not optimal. So it's now gone up from 0.8 to 1.2. And if you use that number, if you um, pull up slide eight, Jamie, um, that's only enough for an adult that weighs less than 130 pounds. Really? So, the, the, uh, sorry. The, you know how he said... And James said in the study, the average vegetarian gets 71 grams a day, which is not only, you know, the RDA, but 70% more. That's using the 0.8 number. But if you use 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, then a lot of people are going to be protein deficient on a vegetarian diet. And Mm. we're not, again, not talking about optimal amount for athletes. We're just talking about the RDA basic bare minimum. And when you say vegetarian, you should say vegan, correct? Because you're not talking about egg protein. You can get... No, this study was vegetarian. They weren't referring to vegans. So you actually could get egg protein. Yeah. So you could use and eggs. Dairy, which is, and dairy right, protein. But egg, eggs are far superior in terms of their amino acid That's profile right. than vegetables. Yeah. So for vegans, it would be different. I, ta- I brought up eggs to a friend of mine. I was, I was saying this really recently. Why don't you try eggs? And uh, they they looked at me like I was talking to them about poison. Yeah, like people. There's p- plenty of people that are vegan or vegetarian, <laughs> and you bring up eggs to them, and they look at you like, "Why would I eat an egg?" Yeah. So, 
So that's, you know, 1.2 is the RDA with if you use this newer method. Um, but for athletes, it, uh, James, to his credit, does acknowledge in the film that athletes need more protein than, than regular non-athlete people. But he doesn't say how much more. So... Uh, again, if you use these IAAO methods, they've done they use this newer technique to look at athletes, and they've found that the range is somewhere between 1.4 to 2.7 grams per kilogram. So we're now way higher than that 0.8 number. Mm. And just to, for people who aren't familiar with kilograms, let's say we take the median number there, 2.1 grams per kilogram per day. Well, anyone who's ever been in the bodybuilding weightlifting community will recognize this. That's one pound of protein per pound of body weight. A day, yes, which has been the common recommendation in that community for you mean a one long, gram of protein. Sorry, one gram of protein, not one pound. No, Holy that's a lot. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, Can you imagine one gram. And in yes. fact, even Arnold in the movie says, "I weighed two hundred and fifty pounds. I used to eat two hundred and fifty grams of protein." Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's that's, that's the recommendation. The standard in the and it turns community. out that's actually based on science. You know, um, so a two hundred pound athlete would need two hundred grams of protein a day, and Jamie, if you pull up slide 10, this is what you'd have to eat on a vegan diet to get that amount of protein. And again, we're just talking about quantity. We're not talking so about 200 quality. 200-pound athlete, that's me. I 200 weigh 200 pound pounds, athlete, so, so you would show need me what to I eat have to eat. Three, three cups of cooked lentils, three cups of chickpeas, two cups of quinoa, three ounces of almonds, three slices of silken tofu, and 10 tablespoons of peanut butter. That's the whole day? That's the day. I could fuck that up in a day. Yeah, Easy. you could. But the problem is the bi the <laughs> D, the DS score for all of those, like the bioavailability yes. and the amino acid profile would be horrible compared to meat, eggs, dairy. So, so what would I have to do? Because I know they've done this study. There was a study that I'd read or had heard about, I should say, um, where they compared uh, rice protein to whey protein, and they found that at a certain level of grams, like whatever it was, they had an equal effect. Is it lutein? Leucine. Leucine. The muscle protein yes. synthesis. The, yeah. the, they had an equal effect. I should give credit to the video that I was watching. This um, gentleman, I was watching his video today, um, Dr. Ryan Lowry, and that they were saying that what that means is that, correct me if I'm wrong, what it is is when you get a once you hit a certain level of leucine, it's a point of diminishing returns, and there's no there's no added benefit to having more leucine in your diet. So if you hit whatever it is, I think it was forty eight grams or something like that. Mm -hmm. If you, when you have forty eight grams of this and forty eight grams of that, you put the two of them together, it's essentially the same the, the same effect. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I, I mean, leucine is very important for anabolic signaling and muscle protein synthesis. It's, it's one of the essential, it's the essential amino acid that's thought to be the most important for that. And it's, it's low in plant proteins. And uh, the other issue with plant proteins that you have is that they have limiting amino acids. So these are amino acids that actually interfere with muscle protein synthesis. So uh, because the levels are so low in that food. So lysine is a limiting amino acid in grains like wheat and rice. Maybe that's, there was leucine and lysine discussion maybe mm -hmm, there. Maybe. And then methionine and cysteine are limiting in legumes like soy. So Jamie, on slide six, I made a chart comparing the amino acid profile in beef to several different plant proteins like white beans, soybeans, peas, and rice. What you can see there is 
beef is higher in every single amino acid um, other than, than every plant protein that's compared there with the exception of uh, soybeans are slightly higher in tryptophan than beef. Mm. Look at leucine. So beef, it's 2.23 versus 0.58 for white beans, 1.3 for soy. Soy is higher in leucine than any other plant protein, which is why it's often used. And then like 0.3 for peas and 0.01 for rice. If you get to a certain number or a certain level of all these, so if you ate enough food that you would pass a certain marker, would, would it be possible to have the same effect by eating cooked peas or soybeans? It, as it, it is would? possible, it for is sure. Possible. So I but agree with that. You have to eat, you have to eat an enormous amount of that, as you can see, because of yeah. the levels. And this is why a lot of vegan bodybuilders and athletes end up using protein powders, because you can get to those amounts easier mm. by using the powders. And right. you can also blend like a you know 70% pea with 30% rice to get the right amino acid ratio easier with mm. powders. So like Patrick Baboumian is a good example of that. You know, uh, did you see the video that Bobby Geist made? No. Of his, uh, uh, so there's actually a video. Oh, is that the one that you sent me? Yes, I did see that. There's yes. video that Patrick made himself of his own diet. Yes. Um, on, you know, what he eats on a daily basis. And it turns out to be a boatload of protein powder and just shakes with all kinds of powders and supplements and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So, yeah, we can go through it. So uh, he starts with a bunch of different supplements in the morning, multivitamin, nutritional yeast, zinc, glucosamine, magnesium, calcium, B12, and iron. Then he has a protein shake with soy protein powder, creatine, and beta alanine, which probably is because he's aware of the research showing lower levels of muscle creatine and carnosine in, in vegans. Um, beta alanine and creatine would uh, address that. Then he has a post-workout smoothie with soy or pea protein powder, glutamine, beta alanine, creatine, and dried greens. And then his first solid meal of the day is fried falafel, french fries, soy sausage, fried peppers and tomatoes. And then he has some more protein shakes and smoothies throughout the day. So I don't know, that doesn't strike me as a super healthy way to eat. What, what, do you, what problem do you have with that? Well, first of all, I think we should primarily get nutrients from food whenever we can. I'm not against supplementation. I think there's a role for it, of course, like, you know, especially with things like vitamin D that you might not be able to get enough of from food or therapeutic supplementation if you're dealing with a health problem. But like getting them, like eating a diet that is not sufficient in the amount of nutrients that you need and then using supplements to make up, you know, to, to address that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, in his situation, his, he's got a very unique situation that he's a He's a strength athlete. That's all he's doing is trying to lift really, really heavy things. So he needs to maintain a certain amount of bulk. He has he to have an enormous yeah. amount of protein. Yeah, an enormous calories. amount of protein. He has to be you – know, he's very heavy, you know, and that, that sport is also – that's a steroid sport. I mean, yeah. it's just one of those sports where it's like bodybuilding. Pretty much everybody. It's a steroid sport. Mm -hmm. um, so you're eating massive amounts of quantities. You're taking chemicals. Yeah, it might not be the healthiest thing. Yeah. But it's also like just the, the sport itself might not be the healthiest thing. I mean, you've seen them carry people on the yoga. He was doing that in the yeah. film. Yeah. Like, that, that's not good for your back. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. But it works for what he's trying to do. 
obviously right. it's working for what he's trying right. to do. It just there's no dispute in that. See, what he's doing is almost like the intelligent way if you want to be vegan and do what he's trying to do. Right. I don't know if he could eat just vegetables and pull that off. He couldn't. But that's kind of the point. There are yeah. a lot of other strong men that do right. just like Robert like Oberst. That you who had on, on the here. show. Yeah, he just yeah. eats meat and rice. Right. I mean, yeah. That guy eats pounds and rice, pounds you know, of beef and rice. Simple, you know, accessible form of carbohydrate and a lot of protein. And it's an unfair comparison. And Oberst talked about him on the podcast before. They're much. La- he's much larger. A he's lot a, of the strong men yes. are huge. Like the yeah. guy who played Gregor. Uh, in Game of Thrones, yes, right? He's yes, one of, yes, yeah, he's, he's one like of them. six, eight, or nine. Yeah, he's enormous. Pounds or something. And Patrick is not. He's yeah. not nearly that yeah, size. He's five, six, or five, seven, yes. or something. So. so the comparison between him and a guy like Oberst in those legit top of the food chain, strongest man in the world competitions, it's not. It's not yeah, comparable. Totally different weight class. Dude, he's and, a, yeah. Robert is enormous. He's yeah. so much bigger. Yeah, but. The problem is, in the film, they don't make that distinction. Yeah. And they try to pretend that this guy is one of the strongest men in the world. He's not. He's very strong, no doubt. And he definitely has broken some records and some competitions and, you know, and you know, have different weight classes and different. But you're not talking about a guy who wins those, you know, Magnus von Magnuson fucking competitions yeah. where they're carrying trucks and shit. Well, I mean, I guess my my point too was like, is it the best ex- example of how an athlete can thrive on a plant-based whole foods diet? Well, I think it is though, because for him, for his size, you know, for to be a guy who's five foot seven and is carrying that fucking enormous amount of weight, he's obviously doing something that's very impressive and he's doing it while he's on this vegan diet. And again, I mean, just discounting all the illegal supplementation, because I don't think it is illegal in that sport. It's kind of you kind of have to do it if you want to get that big. But if you want to do it and do it as a vegan, he is showing you that it's possible. So in that sense, I defend what he's doing because I think that he like that's the only way in that. But this is a very sport specific area of of performance. He's just talking about lifting insanely heavy shit, and he's doing that and thriving on a vegan diet. Yeah, no doubt. You know, enormously strong, and he's succeeding. I would argue that he might do even better if he was eating Meat. you know nutrient dent, more nutrient dense food and he might need to take fewer supplements and drink less powder. Um, yeah, but I think from his that's, perspective that's my it's an bias. Thing. I'm more like a whole foods person and you know that's where I'm coming from. Another problem that I had in the film, especially in relations to sport is the Nate Diaz Conor McGregor comparison. Yeah. First of all, Nate Diaz is not a vegan. Nate Diaz eats fish and he eats eggs. Yeah. And he uh, he does try to follow a whole food vegan diet, I think during camp. So uh, I would have to talk to him about that. I know he's done interviews talking about that, but I've definitely seen him eat fish. I watched him on the Anthony Bourdain's uh, television show, and he was eating fish. I know he he's eating eggs. He doesn't eat land animals. I think what he does is avoids red meat well fish and eggs take care of it because you know fish is actually higher often than than meat in terms of protein ounce ounce for ounce it's also very high in collagen which is super important for recovery and repair and explains lack of collagen probably explains why a lot of vegan athletes get injured which we can talk about more later 
Um, and then eggs, as you know, are super, you know, they're really high on the DS yes. uh, score scale. They're bioavailable, lots of other nutrients. So Here's another problem with that whole comparison. First of all, um, Nate Diaz is a fantastic fighter. He's, he's a long-time mixed martial arts veteran. He's outstanding in all areas. He has a, a fantastic submission game. His brother, Nick Diaz, is one of the best in the world. He's also outstanding and all and his brother nick i, I believe is vegan mm-hmm. um he's probably a better example because you know i mean even though nick hasn't beaten like some of the top flight fighters in a few years back when he was in strike force he was top of the food chain i mean he's he's an elite fighter for sure i'm not sure if he was vegan back then i'd have to ask him but the point being that nate is a exceptional ex- exceptionally skilled athlete and he was coming into that fight on extremely short notice so he was most likely following his off-camp diet, which is eggs and eating fish and things along those lines. And I think he said he was partying in Mexico. So who knows what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. It was like 11 days out. They call him, and they set up this fight. I forget how many days out it was, but it was a very, sh- very short amount of time. Connor was preparing for a 155-pound fight against Rafael Dos Anjos. So he was reducing his caloric intake, uh, dropping his weight down to try to make this 155-pound weight class. It's a big cut for him. Yeah. So when he, when you do that, you, you are in anticipation that the person you're fighting is also doing that. So you both kind of agree that you're going to be in a certain weakened state when you actually weigh in at 155 yeah. pounds. So was so, that like two weight classes below his normal? Well, let me, let me yeah. keep going. So he's... This is that was the first and only time. Well, except the rematch with Nate was the only time that he's fought at 170. So they made a decision to fight at 170 instead of 155 because Nate did not have time to reduce his calories and cut the weight. And it takes a long time. It's a slow process of Nate is a big fella. He walks around probably over 200 pounds easy, wow. and he drops weight. To, and he didn't want to drop that much weight. He's a big guy, man. He's yeah. big and long. Um, and Connor was dropping his weight down to 155 so he's 10 days out and he just starts packing on food eating as much food as he can not only that but stylistically nate's a nightmare for him nate has a fucking evil submission game he's tough as nails his endurance is always fantastic because off season he's always doing triathlons and he's always doing like endurance sports i mean he's in phenomenal shape and his jujitsu is like Many levels better than Connor's. I mean, he's a legit top of the food chain MMA black belt in jiu-jitsu. So they have this fight. Connor gets tired. Nate beats him up, gets him on the ground, submits him. And they're saying this is a victory for veganism. What they don't say is five months later they fought and Connor beat him. Right. They fought again. They, they fought. They, this time they had a full training camp. Connor prepared. And it was a very close fight, I should say. Um, you could have vo- you could have scored it either way. I mean, it's a re- it was a really close fight. Razor's thin. But the fact remains, Connor beat him in the rematch. So I mean, they leave this out of the narrative. Like, oh, my God, the vegans are dominating. Look, vegan dominated. But yeah. he's, you know, this is a last-minute fight. Connor goes up and wait. Nate Diaz, you know, steps in and, and takes care of business and wins the fight. It speaks more to how good Nate Diaz is than a vegan diet. Right. And it right. doesn't take into account that four months later or five months later, whatever it was, he loses. And he's not vegan. Yes, and, and so, he's not vegan. You know, I mean, there, there are a few He follows other, it sometimes. There are a few other examples like that in the film where you, you catch like a certain window of it, but they don't show what happens afterwards. We talked about the vegan honeymoon. So Brian Jennings, the boxer. Yes. They talked about he he went vegan in uh, end of 13, 2013. He was 17 and 0 before he was vegan. And uh, he's been seven, he's seven and four after that. So you can't say that that's because he 
transition to a vegan diet, but you can't also say, nor, nor can you say that veganism improved his performance. Right. I right. mean, it, it objectively, he's gotten worse since then. Well, the, the, the argument against that would be that he's moving up into the upper echelons of the heavyweight division and it's filled with killers, like any combat sport. And that as he got in, many fighters don't make it. They get in, yeah. and he lost to... Um, wasn't one of the Klitschko's? Yes. I think he lost to Vladimir. I think he lost to Vladimir Klitschko in a decision, and he uh, handled himself very well. It was a very good fight for him. He looked real good. But, yeah, I mean, that that upper low, when you get to these Andy Ruiz, Deontay Wilder, I mean, killers. Yeah. It's like not most people that get up into that division, they start losing. He's most a, people. He's a good example, too, of this um, principle of context being everything. Because he said yes. in the film, my early years growing up in Philly – the only thing we knew was spinach in a can, collard greens and Popeyes, KFC, everybody frying chicken. I grew up not even knowing about half these other vegetables. Asparagus, to me, just came out like five years ago. Right, <laughs> right. So, you know, Again, clearly- Again, vegan go- honeymoon. Yeah, going from, like, going from like a crappy standard American diet to a whole foods diet, I don't doubt that someone's going to feel better. Yes. But what do you fe- felt better, like you said, eating some grass-fed bison and some eggs- Broccolini al- and- Along yeah. with all of those right. plants. Yes. That's the question. Yes, that is the question. And the, the, this is the real purpose, my real purpose for getting involved in these fucking discussions over and over and over <laughs> again. Driving so I, me I, in here. <laughs> I want people to understand that this there's nuance to this. Yeah. There's and there's also biological variability. There's some people that are they they can get along on certain diets easier. There's some people that have a horrible time with seafood there's some people that have a horrible time with certain grains i mean this is we are all different we come from an enormous planet where your ancestors developed and your genes developed in different parts of the world we're all different but but what we know about nutrition it is so important that we are honest about what we know this is what the problem I have with a lot of these documentaries. They're not honest about what they know. They're only giving you little snippets and cherry picking data and doing things like the study that showed that the vegan diet can clinically reverse heart disease. These, you're using all this deception, pretending that the, the gladiators chose to eat gruel. Like, this is how we're going to kick ass. We're just going to eat barley. The fuck out of here. This is yeah. nonsense. And they know it's nonsense. Either they know it's nonsense or they just fucking slap some blinders on their head and just plow straight ahead and ignore anything that conflicts with any of these thoughts that they're exp- expressing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many examples of this in the film. One was this um, lettuce has more antioxidants than salmon or eggs. Well, so what? I mean, we're not... We're not saying don't eat lettuce, right? right? I mean, I've I'm always I've always argued that the optimal diet includes both plants and animal yeah. foods, and there's reasons for that. Plants contain some nutrients that animal foods don't, and animal foods can contain yes. nutrients that that plants don't. You've so been very eat, consistent eat, about this. Eat both of them, right? Yeah, I mean, an orange has more vitamin C than a, a beef steak. Right. That's just right. how it goes. But we could just easily say a serving of salmon has 716 times more selenium. Then yes. lettuce and provides 100% of the RDA of, of B12, where lettuce provides 0%. But I'm not going to say that because that's ridiculous. I'm not trying to get people right, not course. to eat lettuce. Exactly. You know? exactly. So, You're not on team. Well, that, and there's another thing that's going on right now, these carnivore folks, 
which I find fascinating because they are as ideologically driven as vegans. We have the anti-vegans. It's like we have Antifa and then we have the alt-right. <laughs> now we have the carnivores and we have the yeah. vegans. And both of them dig their fucking heels in the sand. And both of them are, are committed to thinking that their side is the only way to go. And Rhonda Patrick has talked about this many, many times when people start discussing um, negative aspects of eating foods, uh, particularly plants, because of stressors. And she's like, no, there's actually a, an effect where your body's reacting to them that's beneficial, much like when you get in a sauna, your body reacts to the heat. It's actually beneficial that's for your health. Hormesis. Yes. And that's, she's, like, that's how exercise works, yes. right? You lift a weight until you can't lift it anymore. Your muscle tissue breaks down and it rebuilds stronger yes. the next time. So these folks that are talking about don't eat vegetables because vegetables give you these things that are bad for your body. Like, okay, you, are you sure? I mean, there's a lot of work to be done here, folks. There's a lot of fucking research to be yeah. read into, and there's a lot of conversations you have to have with people far more educated than you in the subjects. Uh, I, I think often as humans, we have a hard time differentiating between like our own experience and what you know works for us and then yes, larger, bigger picture. So take someone who has a severe autoimmune disease. They go on carnivore their symptoms disappear. Yes. That's pretty compelling. You know, it's really understandable why they would be like passionate about that and why they would want to continue that approach. But again, like I said before, we're not always choosing between one great alternative and one terrible alternative. It is interesting to me though, that one thing that we have been lied to about is that you need vegetables because these, you don't need it just much like, you know, with the RDA, you need a certain amount to not starve to death. You don't necessarily need vegetables. There's a whole community of people out there that's thriving and not eating a single piece of vegetable. Yeah, it's really interesting. The the, the problem is we just don't know what happens long term there. So well, I got I, my eye on Sean Baker. I'm not saying. And look, I want to be clear. It might be fine. I, I, it seems like it I, is. I don't know. I'm just saying we don't know. Yeah. So you're you're introducing an element of uncertainty because whether you look at it from an if you look at it from an anthropological perspective, every group of people we've ever studied in human history has eaten both plants and animals in different proportions. What about the Comanches? One of the things I was reading about the Comanches, or was I watching, uh, listening rather, to this audio book, um, what is it called? Uh, Summer Moon, Empire of the Summer Moon. Um, it's amazing. I'm recommending it, it too much. I, I got to yeah. shut the fuck up about it. But one of the things <laughs> they talk about is that the Comanches ate very little berries or, or fruits or vegetables. They mostly just ate buffalo. Well, the Inuit also ate very little, especially during the winter. You know, yeah. they, but they went to great lengths to trade for uh, plant foods, and in the summer they ate more plant foods. So the the proportions vary. You know, the Maasai, for example, and yes. they very, eat very milk, heavily. meat, blood, and yeah. they eat some plant foods. But then you have other groups that ate more plant foods. You know the there was a study, ethnographic study of hunter-gatherer cultures done, uh, 230 roughly study, uh, cultures studied, and they found that on average, uh, hunter-gatherers got about 70% of their calories from animal foods and about 30% from plant foods. So, so that's percent of calories. That's not looking at a plate because right. animal foods are more calorie dense. So it still might be two-thirds of the plate is plants and one-third is animal foods gotcha. if they use plates. But um, – that's the rough percentage, and it, but it would vary, you know, from, from place to place. We don't know of any group 
that exclusively and by choice, not from living in a marginal environment like the Arctic, but by choice ate only animal foods for a long period of time. And a lot of the research that we have, the clinical research suggests that plants have some useful nutrients, especially some fibers that can feed the beneficial gut bacteria. There are studies showing that extremely low carb diets can have some maybe not great effects on the gut flora. So again, it could be fine, but we just don't know. And so there's, you're adding an element of uncertainty there. That's all I'm saying. So there could be a carnivore honeymoon, as it were, just like you're talking about the vegan honeymoon. Yeah. And that there could, so your contention, and this is my, my belief as well, is that most human beings fare better on an omnivorous diet. With both plants and animal foods. Yes. And what proportion of plants and animal foods will depend on all the factors that you mentioned, genes, epigenetics, health yes. status, a geography, right. you know, what, what, whatever else is going on. But, you know, and for someone, some people that might just be a small amount of animal yes. foods. It might be Nate Diaz, you know, yes. some fish and some eggs and then, then the rest, you know, plant-based diet. For other people, it might be a lot more animal foods. Um, that's where I think the in, in individual variation comes in. Right. And I'm sure most of these athletes that are following a vegan diet, like you were talking about earlier with Patrick, they're taking protein powders. So they're allowing themselves to get a, a large dose of protein to fulfill their requirements simply and easily in a shake form rather than having to wolf down, you know, four or five bowls of, of right. some vegetable. And, and if they're it. not, they're, they're probably not doing that well. So we, we have like all these stories of an NFL and NBA athletes that went vegan and then st stopped because they were not able to maintain their weight or they got injured and they yes. weren't able to recover. Um, in the show notes for this, I have like many, many examples of pretty high-level NBA and NFL well, athletes. Just read off of you. Cam Newton is one of them, Cam right? Newton is the most recent one. So he went vegan in February. He had the worst season of his career. He had minus two yards on five carries in the first two games, and he rushed for more than 30 yards, 33 yards a game only once in his last nine starts. How Cam Newton's vegan diet may be hurting Panthers quarterback play and injury recovery. What is this on? Uh, what website is this? This is his notes. Oh, it's your notes, but yeah. it's from a website. Well, it's from obviously. a website. Yeah, there's references. It's okay. uh, And then he developed a Liz Frank uh, injury in his foot. Which That's are, a broken foot, right? It's broken foot and really hard to recover from. Yeah. And some people think, uh, you know, certainly could be career ending. I mean, if, if you lose 10, 20 pounds – that's a big deal for a high-level athlete because yes. the studies have shown that that can interfere with muscle protein synthesis. It can also increase inflammation and make recovery more difficult. So, But the other thing is if they're not eating the protein powders, they're not taking collagen, for example, a vegan source of collagen. Collagen is critical for muscle recovery and repair. And it's hard to, to you know, you can make some collagen, but I think... A lot of people on a plant-based diet, if they're high-level athletes and they're not really getting collagen coming in, it's going to be difficult. When Travis Barker was in a plane crash, he was like severely burned and they were having a hard time getting him to heal. And he started eating meat in order to heal because he's a vegan. He's a pretty, yeah. I mean, he owns, um, what's it called, Crossroads in a really amazing vegan restaurant in, in L.A., and oh, yeah. Crossroads. He talked about on the podcast, he was just wolfing down beef jerky, just yeah. trying to eat meat to, in order to get his body to heal. That couldn't have gone over well with the vegan. Well, vegan. I mean, he was just being honest. I mean, Travis, yeah. Travis is super, super honest. He's yeah. just saying like, but he chooses to not eat meat 
other than that he just did it to recover and then once he recovered he went back to his normal vegan diet so you have um Djokovic who's best tennis player of all time probably he when he first went dairy-free and gluten-free he he would you know was number one in the world he went vegan ranking dropped 22 which is the lowest he'd been since he was a teenager and then he started adding fish back into his diet um and you know back back up to number one uh you have um damian lillard from nba he went vegan for five months but then he added animal protein back that's slide 35 jamie he said, I did it, but I started to lose a little bit too much weight with all the games and practices and all that. I had to balance it out. So now I've been mixing it up a little more, having vegan meals and still mixing it up with other stuff. So it sounds kind of similar to Nate, you yeah. know, mostly vegan, but adding some animal foods back in there. Um, you had uh, Tony, Tony Gonzalez, Hall of Fame, tight end, uh, went vegan. And three weeks later, he said, there was an article about this, said it's in, in the show notes. The 100-pound dumbbells he used to easily throw around felt like lead weights, the article says. I was scared out of my mind, Gonzalez said. He had lost 10 pounds. He ended up adding a small small amounts of animal protein back to his diet. You got Gerald McCoy, NFL. He said, quote, the explosiveness wasn't sustainable because I didn't have that extra oomph that I needed because the lack of the type of protein I was taking in. So I just added a little bit of animal protein back in my diet, and it's given me that oomph back. Now, again, we're talking about elite athletes with very specific nutritional requirements because yeah. they're asking a tremendous amount of their Huge. body. I mean, these guys could probably different. need like 4,000 to 5,000 calories a day to function well. And of that, you know, if, if they weigh 250 or 275, they need 250 to 275 grams of protein. And, and yes. it should be high in leucine for muscle protein yes. synthesis. And it should be bioavailable, you know, all that. And in, so in comparison to the average person, the average person who followed their diet probably wouldn't see any detrimental effect for a long time because they're not requiring their body to do these incredible things. I don't know. It varies. I mean, I've had patients who went vegan and within two months they were in really dire straits. And I've had, and there are people who go vegan and they're fine for their whole life. So if, uh, hor hormones are a big one, right? And why is that? Well, everything, you know, micronutrients really run the show. I mean, of course, the macronutrients, protein, fat, carbohydrates are important. And it, as I said before, you know, if you're 100, if you're 200 pounds, the average American weight is male is 200 pounds. And so if they're in a vegetarian, they're consuming the average number of grams of protein, that's less than the updated RDA. We, we looked at that on that slide. So I would argue that even for the average person, protein could be a problem, both quantity and quality. Most people are getting plenty of carbohydrates and enough fat, so that's not an issue. Then it comes down to micronutrients. So think B12. You know, that's the thing that came up in the film a number of times. So we should talk about that a little bit because there was some actually just, you know, factually inaccurate information about B12 that I want to correct. So the, the claim, um, this is slide 55, Jamie. James said uh, B12 is not made by animals. It's made by bacteria that these animals consume in the soil and water. Before industrial farming, farm animals and humans could get B12 by eating traces of dirt on plant foods or by drinking water from rivers or streams. Um, but now because of pesticides and antibiotics and chlorine that kill the bacteria, 
this vitamin, even farm that animals. This vitamin. Yeah, that produces this vitamin. Even farm animals have to be given B12 supplements. That's just all false. That's all just factually wrong. So first of all, B12 is made by bacteria, but it's animals don't get it from consuming soil and water. The, the B12 is made by bacteria in their gut. So in ruminants like cows, the... Uh, in the rumen, which is a chamber in the stomach, the bacteria convert cobalt that they get from grass that they eat into cobalamin, which is B12. And then they are um, foregut fermenters. So they can absorb the B12 they, the bacteria produce in their in intestines and utilize that themselves. So primates, including humans, also have bacteria that make B12, but we're hindgut fermenters. So we cannot absorb the B12 that our own gut bacteria make. Uh, well, that's not exactly true. Chimps and gorillas can, but that's only because they eat their own poo. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> that is one potential strategy for meeting your B12. You can be just put that out there. You can be coprophagic. We will find ethical poo eaters. <laughs> The whole community now of Reddit. Ethical poo eaters is now a new subreddit. <laughs> so, so, so we cannot get B12 from our own gut bacteria. Right. And, that, and if there is any B12 in soil, it's only from manure, you know, that's come from animals. There's also zero evidence that B12 is fed to cattle. And there's no evidence that humans have ever been able to meet their B12 needs from just eating soil and water. If you pull up slide 56, Jamie... Um, Jack Norris, who's a vegan dietitian, um, you know, we don't agree on a lot of things, but I appreciate his rigor with the science. Um, he has a big uh, article on B12 on this website, and it sa he says, the suggestion that humans have ever relied on uncleaned organic produce for vitamin B12 doesn't have any reliable evidence at this time. So the, I, I just, I don't know where to go with these, that claim because it's just yes. it's this demonstrably false, even well, from the perspective of a vegan registered dietitian. Yes, yeah, I don't know why he said that either, but um, I just think that that's something he probably heard and he was probably having a conversation with someone, and they told him that, and he just repeated it. I mean, it's one yeah, of those or things. Maybe one of the doctors on yes. the on the show yes. brought that up. So well, people repeat a lot of these things, and then they become dogma. So here's the other thing. The, the second part of that claim was up to 39% of people tested, including meat eaters, are low on B12. As a result, best way for humans to get enough B12, whether they eat animal foods or not, is simply to take a supplement. He didn't provide a reference for that, so I can't, it's hard to check that. But again, this contradicts, you know, mounds of evidence on B12 deficiency. So there, you know, there's, there's four stages of B12 deficiency. I don't want to go too far in the weeds here, but... Basically, serum B12, which is the marker that's usually used, only goes down in the fourth and final stage of B12 deficiency. There are other markers that will go out of range earlier that are more sensitive and detect those earlier stages. So the, the, the most sensitive marker is holotranscobalamin or holotc. So in a study in 2013, this is slide 58, Jamie, um, they compared B12 deficiency depletion according to holotranscobalamin levels in vegetarians, vegans, and omnivores. And you can see the results here. Only 11% of omnivores had B12 depletion, 77% of vegetarians, and 92% of vegans. That's a pretty big difference. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. And B12 is responsible for energy. I mean, that's Critical. one of the reasons why when people are feeling sick, they get a B12 shot. 
Well, it's also required for the myelin sheath in our nerves. B12 deficiency can cause serious and even irreversible neurological damage. Uh, a lot of the harm that comes that happens with kids on a vegan diet comes from B12 deficiency. It can decrease fluid intelligence. It can cause neurological damage that's not reversible even after they start eating meat again. Maybe that's what's going on with them in this information. Maybe they have le legitimate neurological damage. Is that possible? Uh, it's possible. There's um, one, what about, one more, ahead, if I please. can, on it, because I'm just passionate about this because it's super important. Um, slide 59. So homocysteine is a marker that is also more sensitive than serum B12. It's a sticky inflammatory protein that's associated with heart disease and dementia. So nine out of 10 comparisons that looked at B12 levels or homocysteine levels in vegetarians and omnivores found higher homocysteine levels in vegans and vegetarians. Higher means worse and it means more B12 deficient. And in fact, the studies, they said the prevalence of hyperhomocysteinemia, which is high homocysteine levels reflecting low B12 among vegetarians may actually be higher than among non-vegetarians already diagnosed with heart disease. So this is kind of a big deal. It's like the B12 issue is serious and, and even folks like Jack Norris, to their credit, do acknowledge it and, and strongly recommend that people who are on a vegan diet supplement. So if people watch this film, you know, it, I'm glad to hear James saying that, that, you know, vegetarians and vegans should supplement. I don't think omnivores need to usually, but you can watch that film and get the idea that, that B12, you know, is maybe not that big of a deal. Right, it's a big right. deal. Um, a lot of the film was reenactments as well. You know, like uh, right. when James was sitting there with the knee braces on, that was not after his surgery. Well, I, th I thought he was vegan in like 2011 or 12 I know, but, or something. But when he, he's in the film, when they're filming him, and he's right. sitting there doing his research. Well, I, I don't think, think they filmed him while it was happening back uh, the, in 2012 no, no, no. after so, the injury. I mean, this is like one of the things that I thought was well done about the film was that they took someone, James, yes. uh, on the kind of the journey of starting as an omnivore and then, you know, having this realis these realizations right. and turning into a vegan. But the problem was that journey happened long before the film was made. Exactly. I think. So yes, that exactly. was a little disingenuous. Well, that's too. why I'm saying he's sitting there with those knee braces on and he's going over his research and just happened to have a camera crew there while he's learning how to heal himself. And I'm like, hey, man, yeah. I know what you're doing. I don't know. I mean, that's a narrative uh, device. It's good filmmaking. Well, even the but... rope thing. Even the rope thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm watching him do the rope thing at the end. Like, oh, boy, I'm done. You just did an hour. Bro, if you did an hour, you'd be fucking drenched with sweat and you'd be exhausted. You wouldn't, you, you, they sprayed you or something. Like, but it's fine. I believe he really did that. I don't believe he's a liar, but like, yeah. I mean, he, like you said, he's clearly an amazing he's athlete yes. uh, and ripped and, you know, super capable. And this was a, uh, you know, an agenda driven film. It was, yes. me it's meant to persuade and convince people. Well, that's why it's weird because that's clearly acting. They're, you're recreating these moments, right, but it's billed as a it's it's right. marketed as a documentary because he's talking about it having just happened right after he switched over to a vegan diet. All of a sudden, he could do an hour on the battle ropes, and then they're filming him. Yeah, I'm like, come on, man! There's no fucking camera crew when that happened. You're redoing this. <laughs> yeah, you think? I mean, I get it. This yeah. is how you show the footage. 
you put it out there and it makes it like a little bit better for people to swallow and get, you know. And I, I like the scenes of him doing the self-defense demonstrations because you get yeah. to see he truly is a, a fantastic martial artist. He really does yeah. know his stuff. Absolutely. There's a lot of great aspects to that. I, like I said, I like that guy a lot. But there's a lot of fuckery in this movie, man. So, I mean, a couple of the most ridiculous things from the movie. Um, Can we get to boners? We can get to boners. <laughs> Go ahead. Wait, take a look. So you slide, slide 64. Uh, you probably remember this this morning. This was uh, the guy who's like in Africa. He was a former special forces yes. sniper, I think. Yes. And he says, this whole fantasy we need to eat meat to get our protein, it's actually bullshit. I mean, look at a gorilla. A gorilla will fuck you up in two seconds. What does a gorilla eat? Uh, I just do the same things to these big gray things out here that we're trying to protect, elephant and rhino. Yeah, well, that's just—it's a nonsensical argument. You know what will fuck you up even faster than the gorilla? A, a human who has a gun yeah. that eats McDonald's and KFC. <laughs> I'm serious. And, yes, and you, right. what is a gun? It's a tool. How did we develop tools? Because we started eating meat and fish and we came down out of the trees and we weren't spending more than half of our waking hours eating leaves and low calorie fruits. You right. know, we don't like comparing our digestive, like what we should eat with a gorilla is just asinine. That's a problem because they, they bring that up all the time. They say we have the same digestive gut tract as an herbivore. That's just not true. Also, just objectively false. Yes. You know, the, the large, the, for a gorilla, the largest vol volume of their digestive tract is in their large intestine, which is ideal for breaking down tough foods, you know, fiber seeds and those kinds of plant foods. Whereas in humans, the largest volume of our digestive tract is in the small intestine, which is better for absorbing nutrient-dense bioavailable foods like meat and cooked foods, cooked tubers and things like that. Yes. Uh, you know, a gorilla, in order to get the amount of protein that gets them strong and ripped, right. they eat 40 to 60 pounds of food a day, and they're eating for more than half of their waking hours. So it's really, you know, that's just not comparable at all to compare us to we also like have gorillas. different genes. It's the same thing when they're talking about oxes, like strong as an ox. Uh, the, uh, there's a myostatin issue, right? <laughs> yes. There's, there's a, the, the genes are programmed to carry more muscle. So, yeah, that's Patrick Baboomian. He says, yeah. you know, people ask me, how did you get strong as an ox without eating meat? And Have you ever seen an ox eating meat? Well, I say, have you ever seen a human with six different stomachs standing in a field eating, you know, grass for 14 hours a day? <laughs> Right. It's ridiculous. It it's is not, ridiculous. It's like, I, I, to me, those those damage the credibility of the movie. Cause well, it's just I, sound bites that sound cute. Like people go, yeah, you ever seen an ox eat that? Eat what a gorilla eats. That's what I do. I know, yeah, but I mean, I, I just, yeah. I, right. It just, to me, though, if it, that's like the quality of the argument being made. It, it, it really does. Just knowing like, they're like you to dispute it. That's yeah. the problem. We, yeah. You know, that's why I bring you aboard. <laughs> I mean, and then there was the anthropologist woman. You remember that mm -hmm. scene in the end where she, that, that's where I really started rolling my eyes because she was making the arguments that humans have always followed a plant-based diet. Did you, do you yeah. remember that part? Silly. Okay, so um, where to start with that? So, I mean, we've got um, isotope studies that show that humans have been eating meat for at least two and a half million years. And if you go back even before we were really actually human, um, there's a lot of evidence now that our chimp ancestors were also eating vertebrates. And one of the biggest shocks for people has been the observation that chimps hunt and they kill other monkeys and other animals and eat them. I mean, it kind of blew apart like this whole idea of primates only being 
um, you know, eating plants. And if that happened, if, 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 a, if an animal evolves complex behavior like hunting or tool use in order to eat certain food, it means that food has a, a lot of value or else that, that behavior wouldn't have evolved. Um, but then we have bone collagen studies. Um, let me see if I can find this slide, Jamie. So that's 47 and 48. So these are bone collagen isotope studies are much more accurate than some of the previous methods that were used. And um, the, the earliest hominids that were studied with these were Neanderthals. So there's three studies that have been done in Neanderthal groups ranging from 130,000 to 28,000 years ago. And then they compared those isotope levels with contemporary species. And they found that Neanderthals were similar to top-level carnivores. So they all derived the vast majority of their protein from animal sources, likely to be large herbivores. And then on the next slide, 48. Why does it have, hold on a second, back up. Why does it have a pterodactyl flying in the background? Why are they bullshitting us? <laughs> does those fucking things live 60 fucking million years before? That's so stupid. It, you know, there's a limit to what stock photography can I know, can but come all you with. have to do is snip that part out, you asshole. Why do you have a guy walking on two feet with a fucking uh, piece of meat on Big a stick? stick of meat, yeah. That's so stupid. And he's obviously not a Neanderthal, too. Skull, um, the skull is the yeah, wrong shape. Yeah, the skull's the wrong shape, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So... So that's double crazy. So that's a Homo sapien, which is only five hundred thousand years ago. Bad stock photo. Well, let's talk about here. Homo sapiens. So, <laughs> so there were there were go, on the next slide. There are two two uh, stable isotope bone collagen studies that have been done with modern humans, Homo sapiens sapiens. And the first group was thirteen thousand years ago in southern England, and the second group was thirty to forty thousand years ago in La Gravette, which is in France. And they also found um, that they were predominant. You know carnivores, mostly large herbivores, but the French group consumed a more diverse mix of protein, including seafood. So the fossil record clearly, clearly indicates that humans were eating, you know, humans and Neander, you know, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, all of our, our hominid ancestors were eating a lot of meat. And she wasn't using any evidence to cite this either, was she? She was using that lame anatomical argument that we have, you know, f relatively flat molars like herbivores do, and we don't have claws and we don't have sharp canine teeth. Right. But guess what? We've got forks, we've got knives. And we've, we've got fire. We, we've got fire to cook our food. Yeah, and we had fire for we a long fucking time. We have time. these adaptations that make those anatomical uh, uh, characteristics that a lion or, you know, or, or a carnivorous animal has unnecessary yes. for us. I mean, that's... That's just like anthropology 101. Right. So I, I don't. I, so they just know, found someone who's vegan, who's also an anthropologist. Yeah, one anthropologist, and then they yeah. rewrite the whole history of you know animal food consumption among hominids. Yeah, and the argument that human beings over two million years ago, the doubling of the human brain size, corresponds with. The, the learning the, how to hunt, consuming more meat. of tool marks on bones yes. corresponded directly with the doubling of brain volume, the reduction in our gut volume, which indicates a move to a more nutrient-dense diet, the increase in the volume of our small intestine relative to our large intestine, and then what's called the gracilization of our jaw, which means our teeth and jaw became less robust, and that's thought to be an adaptation to more digestible nutrient-dense bioavailable food where we're not like chewing cud or yes. you know chewing on leaves or low-calorie fruit like a gorilla is all day. And this argument about nutrient density, this is why this that, that term is very important because people always want to use that for plant-based foods, nutrient-dense plant-based foods. 
meat is far more nutrient dense per calorie per ounce per amino acid profile with essential nutrients, yeah. Yes. So it's essential meaning nutrients that we can't manufacture on yes. our own, and that we and that we absolutely need. Uh, organ meats are actually at the top of the list yes. in terms, you know, in terms of nutrient density. Organ meats and shellfish take the cake. Um, then you have herbs and spices are actually pretty high too, and then you have other, you know, muscle meats, eggs, all of those things. Foods like grains and legumes are tend to be towards the bottom of the list, you know, with vegetables and in, uh, in, in the middle. Right, but that sounds good. Nutrient dense plant based food sounds good. It sounds like you're doing the right well, thing, so and this is like the, where this lingo is coming from. I mean, this is where I argue that plants do belong because plants do have certain nutrients, phytonutrients, um, fibers, and things that that actually don't feed us but feed our gut flora that I do think are important. Right. Even though they're not considered essential like vitamin B12 or vitamin A, you know, uh, vitamin D or something like that, I do think they're still important and they yes. play a role. But what I'm talking about is the difference between caveman altering its diet or the yeah. modern or ancient man altering their diet and this doubling of the human brain size corresponding with consuming more nutrient dense foods. What that means is meat. Yeah, absolutely. Meat, yeah. fish and fish first, as we saw with some right. of the modern humans who are living in coastal regions, yes. but these more bio bioavailable nutrient dense foods. Definitely. Yes. Now, what, what other silliness? The, the, so this is the anthropology argument that just doesn't seem to fit any of the state of the art science doesn't fit yeah it completely contradicts so so then there was the whole section um that you probably remember about uh chicken and fish causing cancer dairy products causing yeah. cancer they started to just it really kind of went from just like you can do well on a plant-based diet as an athlete to like animal products are horrible and aren't going to kill you, <laughs> right. uh, which was a, you know, a big leap. So um, they had one study, uh, James Wilkes says, you know, research funded by the National Cancer Institute found that vegetarians who had one or more servings per week of white meat like chicken and fish more than tripled their risk of colon cancer. Well, that's scary. <laughs> you know, I don't want to triple my risk of colon cancer. Uh, but again, if you look at the totality of the research, uh, slide 42, Jamie, 2017, a meta-analysis of 16 prospective studies with, with almost 2.5 million participants found no increase in cancer risk from consuming fish or poultry. And then you have a statement from the American Cancer Institute itself saying, as for other animal products, organizations that do comprehensive evidence reviews to make dietary recommendations currently do not recommend against poultry like chicken, turkey, ground or, or fresh, fish or dairy. So where's that coming from then? One study that looked at Seventh-day Adventists who mm. added some of those foods back into their diet. This is a perfect example of healthy user bias because Seventh-day Adventists are not supposed to eat meat. So if you have a Seventh-day Adventist who's bucking the trend, who's, who's rebelling and eating meat, then what else are they doing that is also not healthy and not following the dictates of that healthy lifestyle? Mm, so okay. that was, that was a small... they didn't take that into consideration? They no. didn't ask them whether they're drinking? Or? That was a six-year study in the Seventh-day Adventist cohort from 1976 to 1982. And it was what I call them SDA rebels. You know, the, the, they're supposed to eat vegetarian, but they mm -hmm. add meat. So what else are they doing? 
that's okay. conf- confounding that's that. And the reason why this is relevant is this is the only study that we know of that does show a correlation between... Well, there might be other individual studies that do, but this is why we have these large reviews that right. look at, you know, this one looked at 16 studies with two and a half million participants and found no association. And then that's why you have groups like the American Cancer Institute who say... You know, yes. they make this recommendation. Well, I mean, people are up in arms at the most recent recommendation that can't that we, people have been told to avoid red meat. Oh yeah, that, and the, then the, they said, well, actually, there's no risk at all eating red meat. We're taking that off of the list of foods to avoid, and everybody went hate shit. They just went ape shit. Let's talk about for that. lack of a better term. Yeah, they did. They freaked out because yeah. um, so it conflicts with the dogma. Absolutely, and this was. This was a five-paper review. So it wasn't just one paper. It was five papers all in one review. It was millions of participants. You know, they, they reviewed all of the available literature on red meat, you know, and in its relationship with any disease, heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes. Uh, it, it, it was dozens of studies following people for up to 35 years and um, – Millions, again, millions of participants, they looked at randomized controlled trials. They looked at observational cohort studies. They looked at all kinds of outcomes, total mortality, cardiovascular, cancer, et cetera. And they found, quote, only low or very low certainty evidence that red meat causes any kind of disease. And then in the editorial, um, in the, the Annals, which is what it was published, Annals of Internal Medicine, the journal it was published in, they said, quote, this is slide 19, Jamie. Over and over again, they, the authors, stressed that even if the results were statistically significant, their certainty was low and the absolute differences seen were small and potentially confounded, meaning could have been that they were smoking more or drinking more or right. you know, not exercising or whatever. Factors. The editorial also said, this is sure to be controversial, but it's based on the most comprehensive review of the evidence to date. Because that review is inclusive, those who seek to dispute it will be hard-pressed to find appropriate evidence with which to build an argument. Unless you have a nice documentary. Yeah. <laughs> and you can just yeah. put in whatever fucking You're evidence you want. Ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the really frustrating thing for people is also recommend process. It's unprocessed and processed. Yeah. So the, the dogma had always been, well, just stay away from processed meat and you, you, you can avoid fresh red yes. meat. Cause some studies showed no difference with fresh, but some difference with yes. processed red meat. You know, I think you could make a stronger argument that processed too much processed meat might be harmful because of things like and nitroso compounds that are formed, et cetera. But even then you have to consider context. Most people yes. are eating hot dogs with buns and French fries and big gulps. You right. know, right. Right. it might, it's probably a different effect than having uh, bacon a couple times a week with your whole foods diet or having some salami and nuts, you know, not the same as eating, uh, you know, fake processed meat all the time and one of the things that's weird about this whole conversation is it's it's there's a battleground so like a volley gets thrown out there like this like boom it's okay to re- eat red meat and you see the other side scrambling to refute the evidence and and then fire back with all these epidemiology studies that show that red meat can kill you and red meat's causing you to age quicker and red meat kills your boners and red meat does this and does that 
And it's like, it's, it's, it's where there's a religious war going on. It's, it's the same weird thing we were talking about earlier. Now, when you have some kind of political event or some event that happens, it gets spun. You know, if you go watch CNN, it's going to get spun one way. If you go watch Fox, it's going to get spun the other way. It's the same event, but you have these totally different interpretations. Yeah. Um, what else was a bummer? Well, you want to talk about the boners? You, you sure, <laughs> let's talk about the boners. <laughs> I found that to be uh, entirely hilarious, ruthlessly unscientific. Yeah. And uh, like the whole thing with the guy saying, you know, I'm going to eat what a gorilla eats. I mean, they're showing this guy who's protecting rhinos who are being slaughtered for their, for their horns. Like, what does that have anything to do with eating meat? They're, yeah, they're they're morally equating that with eating exactly. A hamburger. Well, they're, yeah. what they're doing I mean, is it was pretty obvious what they were doing. There. Yes, even though they didn't say that, that's right. what they were doing. They're attaching themselves to uh, an indisputable cause. Yeah, you know, I mean, everybody wants people to yeah. stop shooting rhinos for their horns. Everyone right. does. If you don't, yeah. you're an asshole. Don't eat meat. What? Right. How'd you get that in there? <laughs> you guys snuck that in there. What the fuck did you do? Yeah, yeah. So the for the, those who haven't seen the film, the 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 erection, the the boner experiment, if we're going to call it that, yes. is um, they it was Aaron Spitz who's a urologist, and he puts penis rings on a bunch of NFL players, and then he looks at measures the uh, effects of different meals on their erections, both the 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 circumference, I guess, the size of the erection, the duration, mm. and the intensity of the erections. So he feeds the players burritos with meat in them, and then he feeds them the same burrito with like a plant protein. I'm not sure what it was, tempeh or something like that. And then he claims it was beans. Was it beans? it beans? Okay, yeah, maybe. And then he claims that the athletes who ate the pure plant burritos had 500% more frequent erections and also increased strength of erections. So hmm. what can we conclude from this experiment? Absolutely nothing because it was just an experiment that was made up and done in a film. It was not peer reviewed. There was no, it's not scientific at all. You know, that's the whole scientific Well, here's system. how it could have been scientific, right? Yeah. If they did it in different orders. So they put the, the, the penis band on the dudes one night they had him eat whatever the fuck they had him eat you know uh, i think it was steak burritos and then the next night they put the penis bands on them again and they have him eat beans and so they say you got more erections did you guys jerk off in between then did you guys well, have sex did you get used to having the penis band on when you slept with it the first time did it bother you did it interrupt your sleep yeah. the second time were you more comfortable with it did you guys try to reverse it one day the first day on a different group of people give them the band and make them eat a vegetarian diet then the next day give them the band on the second day and make them eat steak did you did you switch that up you can ask any number of questions and yeah. that's the whole point is of that's, science. that's why we have science that's right. why we have a process of peer review that's why we have reproducibility meaning even if one group comes up with one finding it's not really worth much until right. somebody else reproduces that something like 90 90 percent or more of findings uh, scientific findings are not reproduced right. you know that's that means that we can't trust them so i would like to know if they were asked to not engage in sexual intercourse or masturbation during that time period because that would that would make sense that they were getting more erections and more fuller erections the next day especially the young guys that yeah. are you know savages well, I went out to, there playing football. I went to look at research. Like, is there any peer-reviewed research that shows that plant-based diets are better for erectile function and, and lower the risk of erectile dysfunction? Couldn't find anything. I did find studies 
One study of a Mediterranean diet, which includes animal, some animal products, reduced erectile dysfunction relative to a low-fat diet, which maybe might have fewer animal products. So that kind of contradicts it, perhaps. There were studies that showed that like diet quality is more is important. So Western diet and high in processed foods led to erectile dysfunction. Diet rich in flavonoid-containing foods, which be veg- fruits and vegetables, reduced uh, erectile dysfunction. But none of that says it has anything to do with meat. Just says like don't eat a junk food diet if right. you don't want erectile dysfunction. Yeah, it's just deceptive. Totally. Um, there was another, but you know, it does show that those guys did get more hard-ons under that circumstance. But as if, you said, what does that mean? What does it mean? And and can we even trust it? Right. I mean, frankly, given some of the other stuff in the film, right? Can you trust it? Can you trust that? Right. I mean, who who's to say? Right. Yeah. Um, there was another thing that was deceptive, or at least it, it confused people. That's when they made them eat a bean burrito, and they checked their blood, oh, the and then they made blood. them, yeah, the they cloudy, had cloudy blood. blood. Okay, that's that was. I was just sitting there shaking my head, going, "What in the fuck are you doing? This yeah. has nothing to do with health." So again, not a peer-reviewed experiment, something that was or controlled study in any way, just something that they did in the film. Um, so yeah, they fed the burritos, you know, with meat, without meat, and they measured their blood afterwards. Big surprise if the people who ate meat, which has more fat and more saturated fat had cloudier blood. Well, that's normal. That's just naturally what you would expect from the process of eating feet. You will temporarily have more fat in your blood. It has nothing to do with health. So what is the big question? It might actually be better for you. Might be better for you. And so then I went and I I thought, okay, well, what does the peer-reviewed research show about animal protein and endothelial function? Because their claim was that eating the animal protein reduces your endothelial function and, and in, increases inflammation. So um, this, I, there, there was one um, study, that a lot of the, there are a couple studies that show a low-carb diet impairs endothelial function, but they tend to be short-term, like four weeks. I, I look for longer-term studies. There was a 2009 study that followed subjects for 12 weeks, and they found the low-carb diet actually improved endothelial function, whereas a low-fat diet decreased it. And then there was a 2007 study that followed subjects for a year, and there was no change in endothelial function on a low-carb diet. We actually, there's strong evidence that high blood sugar and insulin resistance impair endothelial function. So, you know, a low-carb diet that would lower your blood sugar and improve insulin resistance would be expected to improve it from that perspective. So, again, when you look at the actual science, the actual peer-reviewed research, you don't see that relationship that they're talking about. They didn't even, I mean, when they're showing it to you, it's just scare tactics. They're yeah. not They're not talking about what that means. Well, it's persuasive. Yes. You know, people see it and they're exactly. like, oh my God, the blood right. is cloudy. Even the football players right. who were in the experiment, they were, yes. they were like, oh wow, I'm not going to eat my KFC or Popeyes anymore. And I'm like, well, you probably shouldn't, but it's not for that reason. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, saturated fat is the demon, right, that, yeah. that keeps getting addressed. Explain why saturated fat is not only healthy, but probably necessary. Well, I don't know that it's necessary, but I would I would say that, you know. Well, I should say cholesterol is necessary. Yeah. Well, cholesterol is necessary, um, and our body makes it, too. You know, actually, most of the cholesterol that we have in our body, we manufacture, uh, it doesn't come from the diet. About 30% comes from the diet. About 70% we, we make. 
it the exact ratio varies depending on the person and you know some people are hyper responders of dietary cholesterol so they'll absorb more from food but it's you know it it plays a vital role in the body there's a, a genetic disease called smith lemley opitz syndrome which results in severe cholesterol deficiency and it's it's fatal so you die with not enough cholesterol i'm not However, one of these people on the other end of the spectrum that thinks, hey, if your cholesterol is 450, don't worry. No problem. There's, you know, like, you know, just write it off. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. And it's biological variable. Right? It's variable. Yeah. yeah and, it varies and, 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 and the, you know, you can get, I, and I see this, you know, I've been working with patients for, for over 10 years. I test every single person that comes through the door with a full lipid panel. And I have people who are doing keto super low carb diets who have totally optimal normal cholesterol. And then I have people who go from eating, you know, a, a low, moderate fat diet to like a high fat keto or low carb diet. And their LDLP goes up to 2,500 or 3,000. And their LDL cholesterol goes up to 300. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, what I can, I think what stepping back a little bit, as we talked about this with Joel, but cholesterol for decades was looked it was the boogeyman you know you sh it was like that led to like egg white omelets and boneless skinless chicken breast and you mm -hmm. know bagels with nothing on them <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when i was growing up and now even the and margarine margarine oh my yeah. god uh, i can't believe it's not butter yeah <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was better than butter hilarious which like rats won't even eat if you leave it out in the, <laughs> the garage really but, yeah um really yeah so let's uh, eat batteries. They won't eat margarine. <laughs> That's what I've heard. I've never done this we experiment. Need to do an experiment. We should do it. Otherwise, we're <laughs> yeah. pushing out disinformation as well. Propaganda. Um, go ahead. So yeah, you know the the U.S. quietly actually removed the limitation of dietary cholesterol. They used to limit it to three hundred milligrams. Um, now that they don't have that anymore because the evidence didn't justify having that in the dietary guidelines. We were the last industrialized country to do that. Every mm. other company country had done that years ago. Right. Um, but because, you know, the, uh, how entrenched that was in our country. And I think, you know, that they don't want to lose credibility. It's like, they've been saying not to do something for so long, then to turn around and say, actually, right. There's no evidence to support that. It's, 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 you lose face. And when people talk about saturated fat and they talk about it as being only a, uh, a meat or animal uh, diet issue, um, one thing that I always like to bring up is avocados. Yeah. There's a certain amount of unsaturated fat and saturated well, fat. Every food has all three fats in some proportion. So you have saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. And dairy products are actually the only category of foods that consistently have more saturated fat than any other type of fat. Pork, for example, often has more monounsaturated fat than saturated and even sometimes, really? yeah, lean beef. And what's really interesting about that is that studies consistently show that full fat dairy, which would be like the highest saturated fat class of foods is is associated with reduced risk of heart disease, reduced risk of diabetes, reduced weight, and all kinds of other improvements. Full fat dairy is? Full now, fat is this dairy. raw dairy, like raw milk? They don't different, you know, it, they're not differentiating like that in the studies. Why do you think any so many, full fat dairy. Why do you think so many people are lactose intolerant then? Because it seems that that's an issue. And I think I seem to have it a little bit. And my nine-year-old daughter definitely has it. Well, so... 
it wasn't until 11, you know, before 11,000 years, 12,000 years ago, we didn't raise animals for dairy. So there was no need that we only had to digest lactose while we were breastfeeding. So like in a hunter-gatherer right. culture, as soon as you stop breastfeeding, you no longer had the need to digest lactose. And so we're, our bodies are efficient. We stopped producing lactase, which is the enzyme to break down lactose. And for the rest of our adult life. But then about 12,000 years ago, we, we started, you know, somebody figured out, hey, let's drink some milk from that ruminant animal over there. And milk, dairy products help people avoid starvation and there was a good source of hydration and nutrients. And so that mutation started to spread. And now it's about one third of, of the world has lactase persistence, which means they can digest um, lactose all the way into adulthood and two thirds don't. And it depends mm. a lot on your ancestry. So, so two-thirds people are lactose intolerant in the world. to some extent. Wow, that's interesting. So the people who tend to be lactose tolerant are people of European, particularly northern European descent, like lactase to lactose tolerance um, or lactase persistence approaches like 97% in Scandinavia. So Denmark, Norway, Sweden, they can almost all digest milk. And then East Africans, so you have like the Maasai, you know, people who've been raising cattle for a long time tend to have those, um, that capability. Whereas like in Asia, other parts of Africa, uh, and other parts of the world, not as much. What difference, if any, does it make when it's not homogenized and pasteurized in terms of your digestion? Because for me, I don't have a problem with raw milk. Yeah. Raw milk seems to be easy for me. Yeah, I think there is a difference. I mean, it contains enzymes in it that help you break down the, lac the lactose. Um, so that can make a difference. But I mean, just I would love to see research that further differentiates the health benefits of dairy according to whether it's organic or whether it's homogenized or not and all that. But even just talking about dairy as a whole category, I mean, you had Dr. Walter Willett in there saying there's evidence of high, cons high consumption of proteins from dairy is related to higher risk of prostate cancer. The chain of cancer causation seems pretty clear. But if you bring up uh, slide 44, Jamie, this, there was a 2019 study, largest review of dairy ever been done before. It was 153 meta-analyses that they reviewed. So not just individual studies. They reviewed 153 studies that were also reviewing other studies. <laughs> and 84% of the meta-analyses on dairy showed either no association or an inverse association between dairy and cancer, meaning when it's inverse, it means people who ate more dairy had lower rates of cancer. Whoa. So I just, it, it's frustrating, you know, to, to see someone make a claim like that. And then you go and you look at the full totality of the research and you see a, a just exhaustive study like this with 153 meta-analyses and 84% are showing no relationship or a beneficial effect of dairy on cancer. Why wasn't that mentioned in the film? Well, it's consistent with the way the message is being distributed through the entire film. It's it's a propaganda movie. I mean, that's essentially what it is. Yeah. Yeah, so... It's I like mean, reefer madness for meat. <laughs> I mean, it really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Uh, it's kind of crazy. It is crazy. I mean, there's... there's, there's the the thing that's hard, I mean, and this was true with, with Joel, is like that was three and a half hour plus debate. I don't know how long we've been going now. And we've even barely scratched the surface of like what we could say about the movie. Yeah. And it's fr it's frustrating because 
the the movie these kinds of movies leverage this rhetorical effect called the illusory truth effect which is basically if you repeat something enough times it starts to sound true yes and politicians are great at this trump is actually a master at this um so you know meat is bad meat is bad meat is bad meat is bad we've heard that so many times that someone can get on make a film and just include one little tidbit of information and say meat is bad and it seems like oh that's true. But then to break that down, we're here for two and a half hours and we're just getting started. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh. the trouble. Yeah, that is the trouble. And it's not nearly as visually enticing. It's right. just you and me sitting right. here talking. Well, Where, where's the uh, pretty girls running track and yeah. everybody laughing and, and having a good time eating falafels? Where are the, you know, there's how many vegan documentaries that have been made? Like a lot. What yeah. the Health, Cowspiracy, this mm-hmm. one. How many you know, pro-regenerative agriculture, holistically managed, healthy, nutrient-dense meat movies can you think of? I can't think of any. Yeah. So there's, um, there's one coming, fortunately. There? It's called Sacred Cow. It's coming out next year. Um, Rob Wolf is involved in that. Uh, I was interviewed by it. Uh, it's made Diana Rogers, who's a registered dietitian, is making it. She's also a regener- regenerative farmer. So it's a very interesting perspective having someone who knows the nutrition side and who's also actually using those kind of regenerative, holistically managed practices on her own farm. Mm. Um, you know, but it's not, James Cameron's not behind it. Right. It's not going to have Arnold in it. <laughs> oh, you know Arnold's eating a steak right now. <laughs> that motherfucker, he's full of shit. He just well, wanted to do, it's James Cameron's like, look, we're doing the Terminator. I really want you to be a part of this. I'll, right. I'll do it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, uh, only vegetables from now on. <laughs> This steak was just bullshit. I shouldn't have eaten it. I want to catch that motherfucker, Fogo the Chow, with that little chip on green, just hacking at. Look at well, him. I mean, this steak is wild, so big. The thing is, he didn't become Mr. Universe by eating, drinking soy protein shakes. Well, I mean, again, he's eating steroids. That's what he's eating. That's what he was eating. But he was eating yeah. also 250 pounds of beef protein yes. a, a day. You know, not, not, not quite that much, but <laughs> well, well, grams. 250 maybe. grams. Yeah. Not, you know, yeah. he wasn't. He wasn't um, eating. You know, five cups of lentils no. to do that. No, he, so no, he wasn't. That's the other thing too. You have to recognize with this movie, like a lot of the people who who were amazing athletes who um, they didn't start out vegan. They weren't born you know, to vegan parents and then were vegan growing up right. and then, you know, had made all these amazing records and performance, they built their strength or their agility or their speed or whatever on a diet with animal products. And then at some point they became vegan and, you know, maybe their performance continued and they continued to do well, like Scott Jurek or Dottie Bausch. Or maybe they had the vegan honeymoon where they did well for a while and then they declined. Or maybe they just declined like some of the NBA and NFL athletes we talked about. But this is a critical point because there are key developmental periods when we're kids and also in utero mm-hmm. that like if, if you're not getting the nutrition you need then, it's going to carry through to your whole life. Yes. And so it's like, what did your parents eat? What did, what did they, your mom eat when she was breastfeeding you? What did you eat as a young kid? So we follow that whole argument through. If everyone becomes plant-based, 
it's going to have a huge intergenerational impact on performance. It's not like people who built their strength and performance eating meat and then they go vegan, they do okay for a little while. It's like, what are the consequences of, of, of that happening to everybody? What are the consequences of growing up nutritionally deficient? Yeah. Yeah. Of the mom starting that way and yes. then ha you know getting pregnant and becoming deficient during pregnancy and then the baby being breastfed by a mom who's nutrient deficient and then the kid being fed a vegan diet and developing B B12 deficiency, which then becomes irreverse has irreversible effects. Are there any top of the food chain world champion vegan athletes? Uh, the like the best of the best. Well, there's, like there's no there's no vegan UFC champions. There's, there's no uh, world champion vegan boxers that I'm aware of. There's Ilya Ilyin. Do you know him? No. He's the weight weightlifter that's I think in the same weight class as Kendrick Ferris, who was in the film, mm -hmm. um, and two-time Olympic champion. Where I don't I don't think Kendrick has won. Uh, he's not won a gold medal. Um, but he was stripped of his titles because he tested positive for steroids. Right. So once again, you know, right. what's right. happening, it's hard to say. In Wasn't he, he was pulled from the film because of that, right? Yeah. He was yeah. pulled from the, or, or was he in the film? I, I believe he was originally Tim, supposed to be in right. the film now that you brought this up. Yeah, that's not yeah. a good narrative for them, right? right. And then you had like Tim Sheaf. If I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he was the, he's like the free runner parkour guy mm -hmm. who was going to be in the film. And then he had this very public, I'm not vegan anymore because it was destroying right. my health video on YouTube. Well, he ate a piece of salmon and had a wet dream for the first time in a decade. <laughs> right. like, okay, buddy. It, I mean, it was, it was like- Poor bastard. Yeah, it was- Fucking starving to He death. was doing everything. Po he, he did a 30-day yeah. water fast. Yeah. He, like, he tried everything to stay on the vegan diet. Yes. It wasn't like, oh, it's hard. I'm going to eat salmon. I should also tell you he thinks the earth's flat. Oh, does he? Yes. Uh-oh. Yeah. yeah, but that could be the vegan diet. All those mm -hmm. years, rotten his mm -hmm. fucking brain. Yeah. Well, one of the main guys, um, you know, the, the anthropological argument that humans are, are herbivores because we don't have claws and sharp teeth, that all yes. comes from um, Milton Mills, a 1987 paper from him. He's an emergency room physician. He has no training in anthrop medical anthropology or comparative anatomy or anything like this. He is a creationist. Hollow. So he thinks that we were just built right. this way and with these by teeth God. and the way yes. by God. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, that that whole why don't we this? If we are a carnivorous species, why don't we this? How come we don't have the teeth to do that? You yeah. know, how come you can't just grab a squirrel and eat it? I've actually heard a guy say that. Well, hey, fuckface, how come you can't eat lentils? You got to boil them. Yeah. You're like, what are you talking about, yeah. man? Like, cook. Try eating cassava without cooking it. You'll yeah, die. You'll die. Cyanide yeah. poisoning. Yeah, it's like that argument is so stupid. There's a lot of plant-based foods that are only consumed after lengthy cooking. Yeah. I mean, going back to your question, I'm sure there are high-level vegan athletes. But the, the thing is, a lot of the people who are commonly referred to, like the, Vena, the, the Williams sisters, Serena and Venus, they're not vegan. Yeah, why do they have them in the film? They showed them in the film, and I was like, wait a minute, they're not vegan. Because well, often, people often call them vegan. They occasionally will have periods of veganism, I guess. Do they? But they're not vegan. They eat meat. They, they eat animal products. Um, Tom, they look like meat eaters. Tom Brady is another example. Another you know, one who looks like a meat eater. Who, who you know, really does eat a lot of, you know, you know predominantly plant-based, I guess, but eats meat. Especially in the winter. The Williams sisters are <clears throat> so powerful. I mean, it would be a, a great 
like catch for that team right if they were vegan right. just like look at the, the athleticism that these girls have yeah but nope but it was yeah. weird they didn't say they were <clears throat> vegan they just showed them and so you're like oh they're the best they don't need to say it they yeah just show, just them, show them and that's it well that's same thing enough. with arnold he's talking <clears throat> yeah. great about veganism i guarantee you right now <laughs> carving into a nice juicy ribeye <laughs> come on show me a picture Where's he doing? The oh, that fuck. Epic meal time. He did a video with them like five years ago eating a 80,000 calorie steak and egg sandwich. Oh Jesus Christ, Arnie. When is this? Uh, Ostrich eggs? A couple years ago. Oh, that's five years ago, bro. Yeah. That's a long time ago. Uh, he could be all vegan now, I guess, but. I doubt it. They, they, he was doing this while they were doing the new Terminator movie. Yeah. As a James Cameron movie. He's not stupid. Hollich yeah. boy. And even if he is now, he didn't. You know, he did. He wasn't then when right. he <clears throat> accomplished all of his athletic yes, achievements. Of course. So yeah, um, <clears throat> but that's where it's weird, right? It's like he did everything spectacular with meat, and now he's saying you don't need it. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's pretty, two years later. He's part-time vegan. He's saying in this article now. Now, well, this after was twenty-six. Two years after that epic mealtime oh. thing. Oh, so I got a picture Part-time of him vegan. Uh, in and out. That's, that's not a, a funny vegan. concept. Like, <laughs> how a, do you, how are you part vegan? You know, I'm sure vegans would take issue with that. I heard like, a guy yell, <clears throat> arguing with someone about this once. I talked about this. He said, I'm 90% vegetarian. And this was his argument. Like, that, like vegetarian is the way to go. I'm 90% vegetarian. Yeah. Like, bitch, that's 0% yeah, yeah. vegetarian. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you don't understand math. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't understand true. math. It's even r- more ridiculous with vegan because <laughs> yes. there's a whole ethos, obviously, around yeah. it. You know? I'm 90% like, on fire. Oh, bitch, you're on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, that, that doesn't make it's any so sense. Stupid. Yeah, and it's, it's so like stupid. I said before, all it takes sometimes is a, a little because like organ meats and shellfish and fish and eggs are so nutrient dense. You don't yeah. have to eat a lot of them to get to get meet your nu- nutrition yeah, needs. Yeah, I've had this conversation with vegans too about mollusks, and I was like, you know, I've heard it argued, and Sam Harris has talked to me about this that you can actually make an ethical argument that mollusks are more primitive than plants. And that plants actually exchange more information through mycelium, through their root structure. Right. They, they actually communicate more with each other. evidence of intelligence. Yeah. They're, uh, moths are an older creature. And they're, they're just dumb hunks of meat you can scoop out of a container. <laughs> I mean, they have no idea you're there. They have just basic movement where they clamp shut. That's it. I mean, they're not yeah. going, stop, no. They're not trying to get away like a fish. Mollusks just fucking lay there. And they happen to be, like I said, among the most nutrient-dense foods yes. on the planet. Like one serving of oysters, I think, will meet your need for zinc for the entire week. Yes, that's pretty I mean, impressive. That's we're talking about, like, <laughs> yes, and that's always been associated with male virility. Yeah, like I mean, zinc, zinc is super yes. important for yes. so many different functions. It's for also boners, high. they should have done that test, right? Eat a bunch <laughs> of oyster. raw oysters. Imagine that, <laughs> right? Like eight times more than the guys right. who are uh, eating plants with a ring around their penis. Yeah. What else is going on with this film that drives you crazy? Well, I mean, going back to the whole environmental argument, I mean, yes. that's that's another big one. We didn't get a chance to talk about that as much with uh, Joel because it would have been nine hours instead of four hours. And he would have. Um, yeah. His so, way of communicating is just so frustrating. It's so it's so awkward and car salesman-y. So one of the most common claims is like you know, uh, calorie eating all of the human food. So like we. You know, corn and things that we could feed the world with. Yes. Uh, well, the reality is, eighty-six percent of what cattle eat is is not edible by humans. We talked about that before. They're eating soy cakes and grass and right. fobs and things that we can't digest and absorb. But I think the argument would be that if you just grew the same, like use that same area to grow human food, 
you could do that because we're you using c- that area to grow cow food. Well, so you replace the the um, feedlot beef with grasslands, and then you have naturally, you know, holistically managed cattle there, and then you take the land that we can't, as I said before, 60% of land you can't grow crops on. So it's not, it's, you can't say that. You can't say we can just take everywhere that we could have livestock and, and plant. No, I'm not even saying foods. that. Anywhere we have monocrops where we're growing food just for eat, feeding cows, you could grow, say, True. tomatoes. And- That's one option. But the other option is to re- use that land for grasslands, which w- could create, make it a carbon sink rather than having still emissions coming from mono industrial agriculture. Right. I understand what you're saying, but I mean, if I was on the other side, I would argue, well, th- wouldn't it be easier to just grow human edible corn in that place instead of like... No. No? No, because corn is ridiculously low in nutrient value. Or something uh, else. Yeah. Fill, uh, fill in the uh, blank. Or Kale. soy or whatever. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, if you look again at this idea that animals are the middlemen, yes, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If you look at the conversion ratio... Uh, of feed like corn, which is super nutrient poor. You know, corn is is low in protein. It doesn't have many nutrients at all. 2.6 to 2.8 kilograms of corn get converted into one kilogram of beef. So even in that 14% of human edible food that 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 livestock are eating, they're converting it to highly nutrient-dense bioavailable protein that humans can eat. And if you do the conversion with just protein instead of like by weight of food, they take 0.6 kilograms of corn or other low value protein and convert that into one kilogram of very high value um, nutrient dense protein. So it, you know, it's always more nuanced than, yes. than the argument makes it seem. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is the point. The, the water is another example. Yeah, I was going to bring that so, up next. You know, 2,400 gallons of water to produce a pound of beef is the typical claim that you hear. What you don't hear is that the vast majority of water, even from feedlot beef, 94% is green water, which means it just it's rainfall. And six, only 6% comes from is groundwater, like from irrigation. For pasture-raised beef, it's even more significant. 97% of the water for pasture-raised beef comes just from rainfall and 3% from irrigation. And beef really only, if you only think about blue water, like irrigation, it requires 280 gallons of blue water per pound of beef. That might sound like a lot, but it's actually less than you need to produce a pound of avocados, almonds, walnuts, rice, or sugar. Wow. But you don't hear that. No. In, in the film or in these arguments no. at all. And again, speaks to what you're saying. This, these are nuanced issues. These are nuanced issues and the devil is in the details. Hmm. And so um, we're talking about with cow, again, we have to stress that only somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 3% of all cows are grass-fed, grass-finished. Yeah. So the ones that are eating grain are consuming more water, but even then it's still less water than they're saying exactly and less than some other commonly eaten vegan foods especially almonds almonds are particularly they're um very resource heavy right absolutely yeah but sugar i mean yeah that's crazy huh yeah yeah um what else about the film um you want to talk about fake meat sure 
yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it let's wasn't talk covered about that. as much in the film. But, it's, but I think it's important for someone like you that really understands it to talk about it so people get yeah. well, this could be a standalone clip. So just for people who, know, who, who aren't aware, there are companies like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat that are promoting this idea of fake meat that tastes like meat, and but it's made typically from soy. So Impossible Burger's main ingredients are, are GMO soy, coconut oil, sunflower oil, natural flavors. Beyond Meat is pea protein isolate. Uh, canola oil and refined coconut oil. Um, so Impossible Burger has publicly criticized holistic land management or regenerative agriculture and saying, ah, it doesn't, it's not really that different. In fact, sometimes the emissions can be even more than feedlot um, beef. But there was a third party life cycle analysis, full life cycle. So they looked at the whole process, not just methane emissions from cows burping, but the whole process. Um, at White Oak Pastures, which is a beef operation. It's a, it's a savory institute hub, so they're following this, the regenerative savory institute practices. And they found that their beef operation was a net carbon sink. So again, it actually sequestered carbon from the atmosphere. It was not emitting carbon. It was, uh, you know, carbon, not, not neutral. It was taking carbon out. Can so, I pause you for a second? Yeah. This is something I forgot to bring up earlier. One um, thing that solves the methane issue with cows is just to add a certain amount of seaweed to their diet. When you add a certain amount of seaweed to, your, to their diet, apparently it mitigates the methane, the methane issue. I don't know about that. Yeah. But I think that See if you could find that, Jamie. That's um, something that was uh, offered up as a response to. And I don't think it's a large amount of seaweed. I think it's a fairly small amount of seaweed in percentage to the overall diet. I think the amazing thing about the regenerative agri- the livestock or holistically managed beef, though, is it can actually restore grasslands. It can, yes. it can restore the soil and improve the soil. So you're not only producing this amazing nutrient-dense bioavailable food source, you're actually improving the soil and helping right. to reverse this really dramatic, threatening problem that we're facing of soil erosion. Here it is. Seaweed could help make cows burp less methane and cut their carbon foot hoofprint. LOL. A <laughs> diet supplemented with red algae could lessen the huge amounts of greenhouse gases emitted by cows and sheep if we can just figure out how to grow enough. So right. uh, I guess that's well, the issue. You have to wonder where those, how right. that, you know, what what kind of energy is being used. So so back to this. So this this life cycle analysis at White Oak Pastures showed that uh, this holistically managed beef actually removes carbon from the atmosphere. Now this was the same company that performed a life cycle analysis for Impossible Burger, at, at, on their fake meat. And what they found in that analysis was that the fake meat was um, less you know, of a greenhouse gas emitter than uh, feedlot beef, but it was still actually an emitter. Mm. Whereas the holistically managed beef was taking carbon out of the atmosphere. It was the same company. So, you know, if we're going to give them credit for the analysis they did for Impossible Burger, we have to give them credit for the analysis that they did for White Oak Pastures. Um, the other thing with Impossible Burgers, so the primary ingredient is called soy leg hemoglobin, or SLH. So this is a bioengineered protein additive that adds meat-like taste and color. It does not meet the basic FDA generally recognized as safe, the grass designation, because it's not a food or even a food ingredient. And there's a document that you can get. I think it came with the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, it's online. I have the reference in my show notes. And... 
In the discussion in this document with the FDA, Impossible Foods admitted that up to a quarter of its heme ingredient was composed of 46 unexpected additional proteins, some of which are unidentified and none of which were assessed for safety in the dossier. Impossible Burger put the product on the market despite admitting to the FDA privately that they haven't done adequate safety testing. And according to these documents, quote, FDA believes that the arguments presented individually and collectively do not establish the safety of SLH, soy leg hemoglobin, for consumption, nor do they point to a general recognition of safety. So they don't know what the fuck it does. What's in it. But it doesn't it's mean it's bad. doesn't mean it's bad. Just haven't done adequate safety testing to, in the opinion of the FDA to release this as a food product. The company that did the tests on this uh, Impossible Burger versus the Regenerative Beef, what is that company again? Qantas International. And so it's the one, they're the ones who released the information for both studies. Both okay. studies. So it was the same company right. that did it for Impossible Burger, right. and then they turned around and, and did it for White Oak Pastures, and they found Impossible Burger is still emitting carbon, whereas White Oak Pastures is taking it out. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a very, very critical um point to yeah. make in this conversation and, and, and there's a great there was an an article criticizing fake meat by this woman dana pearls who's this you know part of an environmental organization called friends of the earth and she says quote instead of investing in risky new food technologies that are potential problems masquerading as solutions shouldn't we be investing in proven beneficial regenerative agriculture and transparent organic food that consumers are actually demanding the only issue that they would have with this is yes, but now you're talking about killing animals, and we're absolutely morally and ethically opposed mm -hmm. to killing animals. Yeah, I mean, we go back now to this this 2018 paper that I mentioned earlier that examined the impact of plant agriculture on animal deaths and found 35 to 250 mouse deaths per acre. Mouse deaths. Mouse deaths. <laughs> deaths of mice. <laughs> And up to 7.3 billion animals killed every year from plant agriculture. If you count birds killed by pesticides, fish deaths from fertilizer runoff, plus reptiles and amphibians poisonings from eating toxic insects from the pesticides. What's the number? 7.3 billion animals killed so every year through plant agriculture. in terms of life, there's far more life taken by plant agriculture than there is life taken by animal agriculture, even factory farming. Oh, yeah. We're not killing 7.3 billion cows. Right. So the question is, do we value the larger animals more? Are yeah, they or, worth or even more to us? You know, are fish and insects less significant life forms than right. mammals? Are small mammals like root rodents less valuable than larger ones like cows? Is it better to kill many small animals for foods like grains and legumes, which aren't very nutrient-dense and don't meet our nutritional needs, than fewer large animals that are super nutrient-dense? I mean... I'm not claiming to answer these questions, but I think they're questions that haven't been adequately raised and addressed in this ethical argument. They haven't even been breached. And th this is one that people dismiss offhandedly. This is, this, these are lies by meat eaters to justify their, their consumption. Yeah. But what you're saying and, is... You, know, I, and you, you could make an ethical argument that killing an animal explicitly to eat it is ethically different than animals being killed as a sort of side effect of plant agriculture. I'm not saying that that's valid argument, but I've, I've heard that argument. I don't like, think it's a valid, valid argument because once you're aware of it, you're doing it the same. It's like uh, the argument that I've had with people when they say that uh, I don't kill animals, but I eat meat. Therefore, it's better than what you do because I hunt. 
And I say, well, no, you're killing an animal with your credit card. It seems backwards. You're you're killing an animal. You just hiring someone to do it for you. You you still go to jail for murder if you hire someone to shoot somebody. Right. And you're more disconnected from the whole process. Yeah. It's it's even more bizarre. It's the whole thing is very very strange. Um, I think that's very important though that you listed those those numbers that data because that's irrefutable and it's one of those arguments that comes up that they just want to bury their hand head in the sand about if you're buying agriculture unless you have unless you have your own organic farm where you are a hundred percent aware of every single aspect from seed to plucking and cooking if you're not if you're buying from large-scale agriculture you're a part of the death machine right that's right and you're also part of the environmental destruction machine because yes. these huge industrial-scale monocropping operations are incredibly harmful for the environment. And if you know, if you if you again like you think of like pea protein, you know that's an incredibly processed food. <laughs> like the amount of uh, you know, first of all, just growing peas at the scale you're going to need to have the world's largest pea protein company. And then all of the processing that needs to happen from taking a pea to an isolated protein powder, which involves fossil fuels and all kinds of industrial processes, that is not an environmentally friendly process. So, you know, is that better for the planet than having cows that are, you know, being raised on on land that couldn't be used for... Um, growing plants or other crop production and rotating the the animals in a way that restores grasslands and improves the health of the soil mm. that actually sequesters and removes carbon from the atmosphere. That, again, like Dana Pearls was saying, makes a lot more sense. It's a proven system than like scaling up industry to make more powders. Mm. Yeah, scaling up industry to make pea powder and killing untold numbers of rodents. In the process, or... Yeah. Yeah, you know, and birds and, and destroying natural habitats because yes. if you clear a field for peas, it's not it doesn't have yes. the normal natural features. You don't have the habitat for those animals anymore. I think it's so significant that you're talking about these regenerative farms because that really is the only way you ever get the nutrients back into the soil. One of the, I mean, there was a book that I read many years ago called "Dead Doctors Don't Lie," where Dr. Joel Wallach talked about the mineral depletion of uh, our soil. Yeah. And that this is something that they've known forever that's like a slow degrading of the the nutrient density in the soil. I mean, if that's one of the things that keeps me up at night, seriously, like soil and water. If we don't have soil, there's no we don't know of any way to restore soil once it's gone. So we have 60 years of soil, left. 60 harvests left. Is that years? I don't. I don't know. A harvest is probably more than once a year, I would guess. Really? I don't know. I'm not a farmer. Not a farmer either. Yeah. Um, even if it is one, I think it's once a year. But I mean, even if it is once a year, yeah, yeah basically, um, it's still sixty years is fucking that's terrifying. Terrifying. If, if we I knew got an a, asteroid I mean, was coming. Yeah, I got an eight year old daughter. Yeah, <laughs> like that's right. her lifetime. There'd be no food and cannibals running through the streets. Um, but we'll have fake meat. I don't even know if we will. But we then. won't because we you won't. have to grow soy. Yeah. To get that. What will we so. have? Um, and then we'll have no more fish left either. Yeah. Um, what else? Let's see. God, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just don't know how anyone's going to refute this. Like I said, I, I really like James a lot. But we, we, if he decides to come back 
and come and sit with you after hearing this and watching this, mm-hmm. I don't know what he could say. Well, you know, you can. it's like you said, when a new study comes out with the meat, then you get the whole group of people pointing to all that epidemiology again saying, look, this study says meat has a higher risk mm-hmm. of cancer. Then we have to do the whole thing again. Healthy user bias, you know, food frequency questionnaire, context is everything, you know. That's why it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I think we've hit most of the main points here. Uh, Anything else stand out in your mind from the – No. Did you watch it just this morning? Um, (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. So I'd be remiss if we don't at least touch on these. So, you know, you said before, like – the argument against red meat has always been like cholesterol and saturated fat, yes. right? That's and, and it was interesting in this movie, they didn't really talk about that very much. They didn't talk about cholesterol a lot. They probably they forgot. They didn't forget, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I think what they're, they're actually acknowledging that those aren't super defensible positions Anymore. at this point. Yeah. And so they switched over now to the new kids on the block, which are TMAO, new 5GC, and heme iron. Mm. So there was a guy um, who said, let's see, uh, Dr. Scott Stoll, that's slide 18, Jamie. So he says, um, in animal products, you're getting protein packaged with inflammatory molecules like new 5GC, endotoxins, and heme iron. When we consume animal products, it also changes the microbiome, the bacteria that live in our gut, and the bacterial species that have been shown to promote inflammation, overgrow, and begin to produce inflammatory mediators like TMAO. So I'll I'll briefly address each of those. But before I do that, I want to just say a a word about mechanisms versus outcomes. So nutrition research can focus on outcomes, which is like number of heart attacks or number of deaths that happen in a population over a given period of time, or it can focus on mechanisms, what caused those outcomes, right? So if you use the example of red meat, Early, you know, they saw in these big observational studies that people who ate more red meat died more or had more heart attacks or whatever. Right. Now, we know that that was because of healthy user bias. It wasn't, you know, accurate finding, whatever. But so then they start going, trying to figure out what are the mechanisms. And so initially the mechanism was saturated cholesterol. Then it was saturated fat. Now those are not as defensible. So they're moving on to these new mechanisms. Well, research on mechanisms is not very convincing if the outcome isn't there. <laughs> Right. So you had that large paper that was just published, the five papers in the annals that showed very basically no evidence that red meat is correlated with any disease. So why are we even bothering looking for all these mechanisms that explain why red meat causes disease when we've got this exhaustive study that says that it doesn't? Yeah. But let's humor them okay. and talk about these mechanisms for a minute. So... New 5GC, that's a sugar. Basically, it acts as a signaling molecule. It helps distinguish self from not self. Uh, Most mammals produce it. Humans don't, but like cows do. So when we eat the uh, cow meat, you know, beef or drink milk, we get some new 5GC in our tissues. This is the theory. And then our bodies attack it in an autoimmune response. So basically, the idea is that new 5GC in meat causes an autoimmune response and that increases the risk of disease. The problem is that hasn't been proven at all. A 2003 paper found that feeding people large quantities of new 5GC didn't actually increase their serum levels of new 5GC. So that's a problem. If you have studies showing that eating it doesn't actually increase it in your blood, then it doesn't really make much of a difference. And then you have groups like the Maasai 
you could not design a diet higher in five new new uh, new five GC. They eat they drink blood and milk from cows <laughs> and they eat cow beef. Yeah. And they have no, you know, extremely low rates of cardiovascular disease. And they and look great. Disease. They're, I mean, they're ripped. They're, they're like all thin. I mean, they don't they look, look like, like people that have autoimmune disease and are dying no. early. So, all right. So that's new 5GC. Then we have heme iron. So this is the form yes. of iron that's in beef and other animal products. So it is true that heme iron forms these compounds called N-nitroso compounds and toxic aldehydes that are implicated in, in colon cancer. But again, context is everything. So... Slide 22, Jamie, uh, studies have found that chlorophyll-rich foods, like plants, basically, if you eat them along with iron-rich foods, that cancels out any potential harmful effect of heme iron. So this is a so study right here. So that would right be here. a great point to a omnivorous diet versus a carnivorous diet. Exactly. That this is what I was talking about before, out. where there's yes. a lot of clinical evidence that suggests that plants play an important role. Yes. Do I know for sure? No, I don't. But I'm just saying this is, adds an element of uncertainty. So yeah, green vegetables, red meat, and colon cancer. Chlorophyll prevents the cytotoxic and hyperproliferative effects of heme in a rat colon. There was another thing that they talked about earlier that I just remembered while you were talking. They were talking about fuel and the difference between carbohydrates for fuel and protein, that protein does not provide you with fuel, uh, fuel for muscles, which is not true. There's something that happens when your body eats protein that it can break it down to glycogen. What is that called? Gluconeogenesis. Yes. Yeah. So that process they just ignored in the film, and the woman spoke about this. Well, when they, or who was it that spoke about it? Was it? A, well, I don't remember who spoke about it. Oh, uh, was it? I think it was a man, Doctor Loomis. Doctor Loomis. So or when something? when he, when they were whoever it was it was speaking about it when they were speaking about it, they were speaking about it like. It, like well here you go like this is like this just is a fact case closed yeah case yeah. closed your body needs carbohydrates yeah. to convert to glycogen and that's not true everyone know everyone who knows yeah. like if you eat too much protein on a ketogenic diet it'll knock you out of ketosis right. cuz your body because will convert it yeah. that's everyone knows yeah. that i mean I, I, yeah so that was a, a huge omission or oversimplification. I mean, I think you, you said this before and I agree with you. For for people who are doing explosive types of activity like MMA yes. or, or uh, you know, CrossFit or um, basketball or something like that, they're going to typically do better with, some, with carbohydrate, yes. you know, a substantial portion of carbohydrate in their diet. Whereas it definitely, we're seeing a pattern now of endurance athletes or endurance activities. A lot of those people can thrive on a very low carb diet. Zach Bitter is yes. one example, but well, there he's are not others. just thriving. I mean, he's, he's killing it. He's murdering it. I <laughs> yeah. mean, he's literally a world champion at running a hundred miles in under twelve hours, which is just—it's insane. That's that I mean, it's pace hard to even is bonkers. Comprehend. Yeah, and, and, that, and again, that guy's doing it on ribeyes, and he does take. He was talking about how he ups his glucose before these significant absolutely. events. Yeah, he's yeah. not. I want to be clear. I've heard him talk about this. He's not full time keto all the time. No. he knows yes. what he's doing. Yes, he, knows he knows that as he's approaching yeah. a competition, he needs more glucose, replenishes glycogen stores. Extremely so, scientific approach. Absolutely, but. Um, it's it's not true to say that protein that you don't need 
protein for muscle. I mean, protein is all about muscle synthesis. Right. You can't do muscle protein synthesis with without protein. So right. that was weird. Okay. Well, also, isn't it hasn't it been shown? I think uh, Lane Norton, Bio yeah. Lane, was talking yeah. about this in his debunking of the game changers. It's actually been shown that gl- glycogen absorption or you, they get more recovery. That's what it was mm-hmm. from carbohydrates mixed with protein. Yeah. Than even carbohydrates alone or yeah. protein alone. That's why post-workout nutrition often is suggested that you yes. have both protein and carbohydrates. Yes. So there's one more slide I want to show on the heme iron thing, which is um, 23 and 24. So this is the largest meta-analysis of heme iron studies. And again, for people not familiar with the term meta-analysis, it's where you look at all you know a bunch of different studies that have been done and you analyze them together. It's considered to be a very high-quality form of evidence. So they looked at all um, significant studies through 2015, and they found a significant association between heme iron and disease only in the American cohorts. In the Netherlands, Canada, France, Italy, Japan, and Sweden, there was no association found. So what does that tell us? Go to the next slide, please, Jamie. Well, if you eat heme iron in the context of a super crappy standard American diet, it's associated with cancer and a problem. But if you eat heme iron in a European diet, which is less crappy <laughs> than, yes. than the U.S., it's not. This All, is a perfect example, again, of context. Also, Europeans, they don't have grain-fed steak. Yeah, it's, it's different quality yeah. meat. But I think it's probably more likely that they're not eating that as there, much. Yeah, there's far less grain-fed, grain-finished beef over there. Uh, when you eat it, it's, it's really evident when you have a steak over there. So TMAO and then gut microbiota, and I think we're done after that. Okay. Unless unless no. you've got more. No, I think we did enough. Um, yeah. So TMAO, this is a molecule uh, that's generated from choline, betaine, and carnitine in the gut by a microbial metabolism. And some previous studies showed that taking carnitine supplements and taking choline supplements does increase your blood levels of TMAO. They, in omnivores, they went up by like 37 micromoles per liter and in vegetarians, 27. And that was uh, you know, used to uh, argue that uh, ve- vegetarianism was healthier because they didn't see as big of an increase in TMAO in response to this carnitine and choline challenge. The problem is that research has not shown that eating whole foods rather than taking supplements increases TMAO significantly, uh, especially eating meat and eggs. There was a study in 2014 showed you needed to eat four eggs in order to raise TMAO at all. And the, the max rise was only three to six micromoles per liter compared to 27 or 37, which I said from supplements uh, in some and 10 to 15 in others. And then uh, slide 25, Jamie, this 1999 study tested the effect of 46 different foods on the urinary excretion of TMAO in six different subjects. And eggs and red meat, as you can see, are barely even registering on the scale there. Whereas wow. 19 of 21 types of seafood raise TMAO and halibut raise TMAO 53 times more than eggs did. So yeah, the number, look at that halibut graph, it's crazy. And the cod. So here you have this argument, okay, TMAO is bad. We shouldn't eat red meat and eggs because of TMAO. But halibut raises TMAO 53 times more than meat and eggs. And if you look at the research on seafood consumption, it's almost universally associated with 
positive outcomes, you know, lower risk of cardiovascular disease, lower risk of death from early causes, all of the rest of it. So how, how do we reconcile that here with this TMAO argument? Nobody has ever explained how to reconcile that. So again, interesting mechanism, but the research is not really um, persuasive. It seems like it's poorly understood and they're cherry picking data. Yep. The other thing is that um, back in the original paper by Dr. Stan Hazen um, that, uh, about TMAO from 2013, this is slide 26, Jamie, he said the high correlation between urine and plasma levels of TMAO argues for effective urinary clearance of TMAO. So what that suggests is that even if we eat TMAO, our body clears it out pretty quickly in the diet. So if TMAO is high, it's probably because of other factors. And studies have found at least three one is insulin resistance increases TMAO levels via an enzyme in the liver. Well, we know that about one in three Americans probably have some form of insulin resistance. You know, 70% are overweight, 40% are obese. So it's possible that just being an insulin resistant, overweight American increases your TMAO. It's got nothing to do with meat. Um, gut microbiota, like disrupted gut microbiome and studies have also shown that SIBO, bacterial overgrowth in the intestine can reduce, can increase TMAO levels. A ton of people are dealing with that, we know. And then kidney disease, which of course happens in people who have diabetes. Now, 100 million Americans have either prediabetes or diabetes can also increase TMAO. So you've got all of these factors that just have to do with, again, crappy lifestyle, being overweight, being insulin resistant, nothing to do with meat. Pew. Last point. So they, there was a whole section in the movie about the meat ruining your gut microbiota. Um, and they, I think we're referencing two very, very low carb diet studies that did show a decrease in key species of protective bacteria and also in butyrate production. So this is also one of my questions about car car carnivore or, you know, super low carb diet for a long period of time. But again, context is everything. That's not necessarily the effects of meat. That's the effects of not eating plant foods. And the, there was a good study, uh, slide 27, Jamie, that, that really established this. So it was a 2019 study in the, in PLOS one. So it's free, Full text access, you can go look it up. Gut microbiome response to a modern paleolithic diet in a Western lifestyle context. So they took, uh, I think they were Italians, and they had one group that was on a, um, they put a, a group of them on a, what's called modern paleo diet. You know, So obviously we can't recreate the paleo diet, but just what we all talk about when we right. say paleo. And they found quote, an unexpectedly high degree of biodiversity in modern paleo diet subjects, which well approximates that of traditional populations like the Inuit, Hadza, Matsis, and Peru. So they found that eating a paleo diet made your gut microbiota look like a hunter-gatherer microbiota. And by paleo diet, what we mean is meats and vegetables. Meat, non-starchy vegetables, nuts and seeds, fruits, and starchy tubers like sweet potatoes. So... People who ate that diet had a microbiota that resembled hunter-gatherers, which have the best microbiota. Like studies have shown that their microbiota is what we want to have. So this study shows it's not about the meat. It's about what you eat with the meat. Which only makes, makes a difference. Sense. Which yeah, only makes sense. Because we know what feeds the microbiota. Yeah. Fiber. Is there anything in this movie that they got right to end on a positive note? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with them on the problem. Like, I think feedlot, CAFO, wait, beef and livestock production is not the way to go. Right. I think it can be environmentally destructive. Um, it's just where from there where they went with the solution is not where I go. They go to plant-based vegan diet. I go to regenerative, holistically managed livestock, you know, um, shifting the food production to s smaller scale or at least shifting the, the method of, you know, plant production so it's less industrialized um, and doing things that actually can improve soil quality and sequester carbon from the atmosphere rather than scaling up more industry and more technology. Well, I hope this acts as a guide for people that are confused by this, and I hope people recommend this because this is probably as thorough a breakdown as anybody's ever done on that documentary. And uh, I just wish people would stop doing this. I, I really wish they would just follow the actual science, even if it's inconvenient to their dogma. And it's a real problem when people don't. It really is because it's, it's confusing for folks, and there's a lot of people who suffer health consequences because of that confusion. Well, it's a shame, too. I know we talked about this with Joel. Like, I think actually vegans and people who are recommending what we're talking about now have a lot in common. You know, we want better methods of food production. We care about the environment. We care about animals and animal welfare. We just reach different conclusions yeah. about, you know, from looking at those problems. And I, we probably have more in common with the average American or person in the world who's just not even thinking about it at all, is eating processed and refined crap and doesn't care. We have care. much more in common with the vegans. Yeah. The difference is th these people, like the people that made this documentary and like Joel, they want to ignore evidence that flies in the face of what yeah. they're trying to promote. Yep. And they do it with really frustrating and deceptive methods. And that's what I thought when I watched this film. It was hard for me to watch the whole thing. I'd watched little clips of it before, and I kind of had gotten a review of it and knew what it was all about. But watching the whole thing, like sitting there going, what the fuck, man? Come on. I was on an airplane. I had told you this yeah. before. Because I knew I had to be in an environment where I couldn't just run away and <laughs> turn it off. And uh, But I was like laughing out loud in parts and, and kind of like wanting to shout at others. The boner part? The boner part, the peanut butter and jelly, the peanut butter sandwich. Because you knew the Because I knew yeah. right yeah. off the bat, you know, there were just a lot of things that were 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 funny, um, if but sad. Well, Chris, thank you for doing this, and James will have you on if you want, really want to do this. And uh, he's game. Okay. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, he, well, he, after this breakdown, I wonder how know. game he's still going to be. Yeah, I wonder how game I'm going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you let me know, okay? Because you're the Jeez, only guy for this I'm, job. I'm running like seven and a half combined hours on this I know, topic recently. But so. Listen, you're doing the world a, a gigantic service. Thank you. And well, I, I truly, truly appreciate well, thank it. thank you so for having me on. Tell people one more time the website. Uh, Cresser.co slash Game Changers for all the references, bibliography, studies, and the show notes. Chris Cresser on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Why did I say Twitter that way? Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. Uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. Same yeah, thing, all right? All those places. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Really Thanks, appreciate Joe. you. Thank you. Bye, everybody.